Hey guys, it's me, Napoleon Doom, and I wanted to let you know about a little thing we call the Grammarican Pie Episode Art Contest. Yes, that's right. This is going to be a weekly contest by Grammaricans for Grammaricans where you submit the next beautiful piece of episode art to me, Nap at Grammarica.com. Now what is episode art? Episode art is just a little taste of what that interview for the week is going to be about. Just to get people interested, just to get people looking at that interview and maybe clicking on it. For those of us on like the, you know, sort of like the hard science journalism side, nothing would be more exciting than having this stuff prove to be real. Like if there really are UFOs visiting us and there really are aliens coming to our planet. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We are going to be chatting with science writer, uh, editor, um, Corey S. Powell a little bit later. This is a fun one. And we've got our old buddy, Brian Lord. Some of you guys might remember him from uh, last summer when he came up with Randall Carlson and the boys. Uh, but first, as always, Graham, don't call my earbuds headphones Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> Not bad. Pretty so, good. Let's get this right out of the gate. Get what right out of the gate? The ear earbuds versus headphones. Debate. No, it's just people call them earbuds. They're headphones are the big things you wear that we're wearing on our heads right now. I'd like to see that. Uh, I'd like to see feedback on I'd that. I'd like to see feedback Jeez, You have to just challenge me on everything, eh? You can't you just challenge let me, me. Have... You started it. You told me I was the only person in the world that called earbuds headphones. That. And then Brian immediately backed me up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I want to mention a little bit about Corey Powell and what we talk about. We talk about all kinds of good stuff. The star shot technique and a lot of space exploration stuff, energy technology, dark matter, gravity waves, and some of the up-and-coming stuff like CRISPR and editing the genome. It's pretty cool chat. Corey's a great, uh, great guest, and uh, yeah, it's a real good one. So, uh, yeah, did you want to hear about the astral harvest there? Because since Brian's on, it's a perfect time to talk about this. Brian and I were talking festivals last summer, and he got me all pumped up on it, and then I just finally went to my first one. Was it a rave? It was a rave. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> it was a rave. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long one. <laughs> yeah, it was good though, man. I I almost think of I it seen, as I'm friends with the guy on Facebook through my buddy Nathan Bryson. Um, he's got a buddy Tanner who actually wanted to have us on his podcast. He's a local guy who has a podcast, but we're Facebook friends or something. We're somewhere in there. Um, and he went on Facebook and I seen his pictures of Astro Harvest yeah. and I was like, it's a rave. I wonder if Graham's going to own up to the fact that it was a rave. Yeah. So do tell about the mask pics. Nothing. I just, <laughs> nothing. I knew, I knew I'd get busted on that. Somebody fucking tattled on me. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Can I see them? No. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of I mask? Just, put a ma just a masquerade, masquerade mask, mask like, that yeah. you bought for Paradigm? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, no, I didn't buy it. It was free. Weird little it was dude. free. Well, you know, come on, I, I show fucking, me the pic. No, I'm not showing can you the pic. It is a show note. Is the picture? <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, you've been to these festivals before, and I, I, I would consider it like a modern shamanic experience, or it can, or it could be. Like I was, you know, stone cold sober there the whole time, and like I felt high from the music and the visuals and stuff. It was pretty cool. Yeah, there's there's definitely something to it when 
you put, when you get like a critical mass of people gathered together, removed from the kind of normal way that we tend to go about ourselves in, in, in regular society and you get them around that. And then everyone starts altering their consciousness with dancing, with drugs, with psychedelics. And it reaches this kind of critical mass where it hits everyone. You don't have to take anything. Yeah. You know? That's what I noticed. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, and there was some, yeah. there was one, there was <laughs> there was one band where, or DJs, they're called Ski Tour, and they just blew, they blew me away. Like, I, they totally blew me away. I was wondering where everybody went, and I went to this other stage, and everybody was there packed, and I was in the, the crowd. Did you get them? You should have talked to some of these guys And something about the rhythm, and it just, and it was, it was unbelievable. Like, totally, like, like you said, altering, like, kind of mind-altering. Imagine really. if you'd have been all fucking whacked on mushrooms or MDMA or something. It could have changed your life. Well, maybe it did change. Maybe it, it did change my life, and I didn't need to be on Everything, on it. Everything changes. Your yeah, it was a total was it, visual. So it was electronic. Yeah, it was a total visual, visually stunning as well. Like all the stages had different types of visuals, and it was art and workshops, and people were learning about. It was cool too, Brian, because I don't know about other other festivals if they have this kind of learning experience as well. But there was lots of yoga there. Every day there was a few different yoga classes in front of the stages, and then workshops like i went to this fear fear into fearlessness workshop and then another one about anarchy and alchemy it was pretty cool like just people learning about themselves as well yeah that's the really that's the way to do it now and and like that's what the really good ones do now is uh you have like workshops and activities to get people to interact with each other and and on on like a social kind of level during the day yeah. And then at night, that's when you have the music and everyone dances and, and, and parties and stuff. And, uh, and, and it's a great balance. Cause like you, you go and you learn all these things, you, you start approaching each other in, 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 in a different way, try to be more authentic with each other. And, um, and then you dance all that off at night. And, uh, that's what they do at like the, the transformational festivals, out on the West coast, like symbiosis and lightning in a bottle. And, um, we have one, uh, that we've had, we've had going for a few years in the Southeast now called connection. Oh yeah. And, um, and it follows that model and, and it's excellent. Con- connection is actually my, my favorite event that I've ever been to. And, um, and it's, it's just a great way. It, Cause it, it, Again, it's like it, it kind of tears down the normal kind of roles that we're used to playing with each other when we're out in the normal world. You know, we, ju- we just kind of have these like mechanical loops that we run through as as we interact with each other. And when you get out outside of that and you start to interact with people more authentically and directly with the understanding that everyone is there at this event to do that. Everyone is, everyone is there for, for a meaningful reason. It completely changes the way you treat people and the way you, you, and you get this idea of, of, you know, this like glint of potentiality of, of a new society yeah. uh, of how, yeah. of how yeah. we could actually possibly treat each other. Like, could we actually do this all the time? And not just have it be this, this psycho vacation that, that is kind of wasteful. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. And it's just so non-judgmental. Like, it seems like that's where people can go 
and be kind of who they want to be or be <clears throat> somebody else, you know, and then it's not, they're not going to be, they can dress how they want. They can act how they want. And there's really not a j- lot of judgment going on. I don't think. Did you plan to wear the mask as soon as you left or did that like, did you brought it? So well, I just brought it just in case. And then I just thought the case. one night I wanted to just put something on my face. So was everyone else doing it or this was oh, just they, you? So it was, what, do you, what do you mean? Was everyone else? Doing I just saw I'm like, trying to get the vibe for it. Every, yeah, there's dinosaurs. There's fucking light people. Oh, like, this, are we going <laughs> to see? Show me this mask pic. I don't have it. I'm not putting it out there. You can stop asking. Why me did you that. show Eric the mask? I didn't. He fucking <laughs> was looking over my shoulder and he saw it. Come on, show I me. I didn't even show him. Just he show just, me one. No. Just show me one. You can hold it. You can hold it. I'm just showing you <laughs> other pics here. So, I mean, it is cool having the Instagram account now for Gray America. So I put some stuff up there. Look, there's a lady writing writing poems with a typewriter for you out in the, nice. in the desert there. Was she stoned? I don't know. Did she, you didn't get a poem? No. Did the poem cost money? I wrote a poem on Instagram for that. Did you Did not you? see it? You didn't see it? How would I see it? Well, I thought maybe you'd check out our Instagram account every once in a while. No. It's right there. Never. Roses are red, violets are blue. Darren is too skeptical, but Gray America believes in you. (laughs) (laughs) I rest my case. (laughs) That's good. Come on, Kate, show me the mask. No. So, Brian, um, how have you been other than that? You got to tell us about your last trip here. Yeah, I went to Iceland. And uh, I actually uh, went to my first... Uh, non-American festival. I went to a festival out there in Reykjavik. Wow. It it was called Secret Solstice. And um, it took place right around the summer solstice. And it was really unique because Reykjavik is at like 64 degrees latitude. So it's so so far north that the sun doesn't set. So uh, (laughs) I was out in Iceland for like two and a half weeks and I didn't see nighttime the whole time. And, uh, but it was interesting for the festival because the sun never went down at the festival. So it was really disorienting Yeah. after, after a while. Cause, cause you kind of like lose your sense of when it's appropriate to stop <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or, or to start again, you know? <laughs> and, uh, well, there. I don't, I noticed that up here it was six hours North of here and literally it would get dark around midnight and it would start. Like I try to go to bed at three thirty or four, and it was already getting light out. So you don't it was like have three to go hours of darkness. That's northern it. Manitoba. Don't get dark. Like you don't have to go much farther than that. Twelve hours north of here, and it's yeah, yeah. Well, like well, like normally, like cause like I don't like uh, I don't like day drinking or like getting getting too hot. And uh, so normally, like when the sun starts to go down, it's like okay, now it's time to like start partying. Uh, at like a normal festival. And then when the sun starts to come back up, it's like, okay, maybe I should like Call, start to start, start, start to, to like, but, but the sun never even goes down. And, and it was just kind of cloudy a lot of the time. It, it stays cloudy a lot in Reykjavik. So you never had any sense of what time it was at all. <laughs> and, and so that made, that made for an interesting experience. And, uh, Imagine in and the also, winter, the opposite of that is shitty. Yeah, yeah. So, how long does it stay dark for in the winter? Oh, like uh, like three months or something. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, they get hints of it. I don't know. I just heard stories that it, it's just dark, and like it gets so dark and cold, they just kind of 
hole up and make their crazy art. The, uh, the, I, I met this one guy that claimed to be like one of the guys for legalization of, of cannabis and other drugs and stuff out there. And, um, and he was kind of telling me about what all, how that all works out there. And, and they have, they have this because of the seasons, because of how dramatic it is, they have this very kind of, uh, dramatic cycle, seasonal cycle to, uh, their music scene. Um, cause there are these, uh, there are these psychedelic mushrooms that grow all over the Island mm-hmm. and naturally, and they all sprout around September, October, like in the fall, just when it's becoming winter. And so everyone goes out and picks them and then they cure them. And then they have mushrooms to eat all winter while they write their amazing music. And then when the sun comes back out again, they go and they debut it and they play it around and, uh, and they have their, their like summer music season. Wow. And it's kind of cool. It's like very, very locked in with the seasons there because of the light cycle. And, and is this sort of electronic type music? Is that what you're talking about or all kinds of different music? It's, it's all kinds of different music. Their, their art scene is like brimming with, with, uh, energy and vitality because it all takes place in Reykjavik. That's the only real city. Like, like there are a couple other small towns and stuff in Iceland, but everything takes place in Reykjavik. What's the population of Reykjavik? About 220,000. Oh, so you're talking two, two out of every three people. Yeah. 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 There's, there's 330,000 total on the Island. Yeah, that's right. And so they all know each other. And so they're all interacting with each other and challenging each other and inspiring each other. So it's really, really vibrant. And, uh, and, and whether it's their, their novels, their literature or their visual art, their street art, their music, you can, you can tell there's, and and there's just, there, there's like something so distinct about it and especially getting out there and seeing it and like seeing the landscape which uh, that country is just the most beautiful place I've ever been. It, it really, it, it's like impossibly beautiful everywhere you go. Is, it, and, uh, is there something about the political uh, system as well? And you know how all the, the banking has been sort of going well, sideways as well. And, and you know, the, well, there's this, uh, there's this story that's been popularized all over the internet for a few years now that like Iceland jailed all their bankers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not really true. <laughs> and, uh, they, they jailed a couple people that did stuff that was so egregious that they had to be jailed. But, um, they, yeah, there's, there's someone is, is vacuuming. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, they didn't like get rid of their corrupt banking system and, and, you know, flip off the Rothschilds or something like the way, the way the internet might tell you. Um, they got hit really hard by the financial crisis and it collapsed their economy. It collapsed their currency a little bit, but one of the effects of that was that it kind of opened up the country to tourism because now the exchange rate was a little bit more fair in terms of it not being, prohibitively expensive to visit. 
And so ever since about 2008, 2009, there's been this pretty large influx of, of tourists going to Iceland to see Reykjavik, to see their art, to see the incredible landscape, to, to see did Iceland. You puffin? Did you eat puffin? I didn't eat puffin. I did eat fermented shark. But we didn't have the fermented puffin. I thought that's like the national dish. <laughs> well, the, the, the fish, I had some fresh cod and that was really good. I the, uh, kissed a cod. Did you? Yeah, when I was screeched in. in <laughs> I had to do a bunch of stuff. I can't remember the whole thing. There was a whole, uh, whole protocol. I had, to, or... I had to do a shot of some stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then I was an honorary newfie. Oh, wow. <laughs> always, always be as a boats. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> So yeah, so it's it's uh so it's not as extreme as uh, you hear about on the internet as far as all that banking and the political system goes. Because didn't that didn't that uh, didn't the president or of Iceland or prime minister, whatever you call him? Well, he just had to resign because of the that Panama, Panama papers. papers. Like oh, that's weird too. He he, um, he stepped down pretty peacefully. Uh, he was intending to resign anyway. Was the story that I got? Mm. I actually heard and, that. Oh, sorry. And well, I, I think the thing with the Panama Papers, I th the story that I got was that it was more related to his wife than it was to him. And he was kind of intending to resign anyway. And they just had, ele they had elections while I was out there. Oh. And um, it was kind of crazy. There's all this stuff that went down while I was out there. The, the Brexit happened while I was out there. <laughs> uh, they had their presidential election while I was out there. And they won all those games in the Euro Cup. Oh, while yeah, I was that's right. Too. Yeah, they must have been going nuts. Oh, I was partying with him. It was great. <laughs> I heard Iceland and, has an app too that to stop you from hooking up with your cousins. Yeah, they do. Yeah. It's, what? It's a, what? Because there's so few of them. Wow. And How do they win the soccer games? There's so few of them to choose from. Because they're That's bad. All the inbred ones. Because they're Vikings. They have that Viking. <laughs> yeah. And, there goes uh, a couple. Right, there goes our, there goes, we actually have listeners breakfast. in Iceland. Is there quite a big uh, English speaking population? I mean, they they all speak English. Yeah, that's what I thought. Because yeah, I think uh, I was actually surprised by the amount of people that listen. I said, it'd be even more surprising since I found out there's only three hundred thousand of the fuckers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they. I mean, they do everything in Icelandic. Like that's their language, and they use it for everything. And uh, it's really cool, actually. They like because they came from Norway, and they've preserved like the original Nordic language. Ah. I have I have some Norwegian that, in me. That explains the fish for breakfast. Yeah, and and like even when they converted to Christianity in a thousand, they and and then when they started getting Bibles, they translated the Bibles to Icelandic. They didn't do it in Latin. They they tried to do everything in Icelandic. It's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, do you know any Icelandic phrases you could tell us? Um, e i e, e i e is cheers, right? No. Oh, is it? Yeah. I think so. Oh. Ziggy, ziggy, ziggy. <laughs> well, they, they, um, there's this term. Uh, I was taught that it, uh, there, there's this term, yaya. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like Lil Wayne. And uh, it doesn't really mean anything. Like, it doesn't really translate as anything, but it's something that Icelanders will say when it's like kind of a lull in the conversation or something. And it's like time to kind of go. It's like time to leave or move on. Just kind of like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then someone else will say, yeah, yeah. And then you get up and go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. 
<laughs> so I this it looks like we only have one listener. This, <laughs> <laughs> this festival, this how how big was it? It was about fifteen thousand people. Oh, okay, and like how many stages did they have? They had either three or four. Yeah. Did you wear a mask at any point? <laughs> no, but I wore a hat. <laughs> Somehow I find that. Did you wear fur at all? Did you dress no. up as an animal or anything like that? No. Did you? I, <laughs> no. I, you did, didn't you? No. no. I might, what though, next you, time. Are you a tiger? Or is it a griger? <laughs> I mean, everyone has a little bit of furry in them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right on. You just got to find it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, Radiohead played, and they were the big headliner. Oh, okay. Uh, are you a fan of Radiohead? I love them. I love. Like, I like Paranoid Android. Yeah, they played it. It yeah, was great. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Um, yeah. Oh, how, how about so your I want to hear about the hike. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Talk about the hike first, because yeah, that's so, quite a fucking undertaking. It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was, it was one of the more serious things I've ever done. <laughs> you, you were pretty prepared for it then? It wasn't like a willy-nilly? Did you plan to do it right from the get-go? That Well, the, the, I went out to Iceland to go to the festival and to do this hike. And, uh, and also, there, there, I had like a couple kind of goals. And um, those were the two big like activities, though. And um, I hiked from Skogar to Land Manilauger which was 87 kilometers from just about kind of the South coast into like into the central part of the, the island. And, um, it, I, I combined two trails. There's like the trail from Skogar to Torsmark, um, which is, it's like 30 something kilometers. And then the skit, the, the trail from Torsmark to land Manilager. And that's known as the, the Lauvegger. And uh, that's one of, it's like this famous hiking trail. It's one of the most sought after hiking trails in the whole world. And when you get out there and see it, you understand why. And uh, it's like, I'm used to, I'm, I'm from the South. I, I live in Appalachia. Uh, it's a rainforest down here. The kind of hiking that I'm used to doing is you go into the forest and, and you hike and you get periodically rewarded for hiking yeah. because you, you get to these like lookout spots yeah. where you can see the landscape and it's amazing. And you get there and, and you stop and you pause and you look at the landscape and then you go back into the forest and keep hiking, you know? So just for a scale ground, that's like from walking from here to your place and back and then to, from, so from here to your place, back to here, back to your place, back to here, then back to your place. For 87 kilometers. Yeah. 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 It's about, it's like 50 something miles. Yeah. And, uh, but in, how long in, did I, it take you? I did it in six days, but I took a couple days. I, I took one rain day cause it was raining all day and I didn't want to walk in the rain. And then the, uh, the first day I did 26 miles. I just did the whole or 26 kilometers. I did the, uh, the whole first part from Skogar to Taurus Mark in one go, uh, which was a bit overzealous. And uh, I had some, some pretty frightening fucking moments out there because uh, I, I started like at this waterfall and the trail went along this river 
that just had like waterfall after waterfall. It, it was amazing, but it went up into the mountains and it went into like glaciers. And I was actually flanked between two volcanoes, one of which was Eyjafjaka Jokul, the volcano that erupted in 2010. Mm. And, um, and there's a hut up there that was like kind of a waypoint. And I got there at like six o'clock in the evening and I still had plenty of energy. And, uh, and so I decided to keep going and, but they gave me all these warnings when I got there about how, how foggy it was in the snow and how you can't see the trail marker and you can't trust the footprints in the snow either because people got lost. She can't just fall. Yeah. So, but I ended up, uh, there's this other guy, this German guy named Dieter that we went together and, uh, and it really, it was good to like have someone with me for that part because we did get lost in the fog and, uh, and where like, cause like there was this one part you could see cause the, the trail had the trail kind of turned along the glacier and you would get to this one part where all the footprints wouldn't be in the same orientation anymore. And they were just kind of scattered all around. And, uh, and we were like in the middle of a cloud. So you couldn't see like where anything ended. And, uh, it was, it was legitimately disorienting and, and, and a bit, and a bit frightening. And, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't really legitimately frightened at that point. It was later when we had gone like 20 kilometers and I was exhausted and blistering in my feet because my feet got wet from snow getting into my boot. And yeah, no, I like took a bad step where my foot like broke through the glacier and, uh, and so all the snow got into my boot and then I blistered up everything. And, uh, so I was like exhausted and my muscles were like trembling and shaking. And we were trying to climb down this mountain along like this rocky trail that had loose gravel and stuff. And it was still really fun. <laughs> what is that? It's, uh, what is this called? I don't know. Darren's got a toy over there. So I've got this instrument. I've been, I've been waiting tail. for the opportunity to just <laughs> add a little. Yeah. <laughs> So, so your feet were blistering, you're walking down this gravelly trail. And, uh, and I, I've been thinking about this moment ever since it happened. Cause I think we kind of, I think we went off the main trail and we didn't really realize because it was like, it kind of went out on this rocky ridge where it was just a sheer drop off of both sides. It was like, it was like that part in a video it was like that part in a video game where like, if you fall, the camera doesn't even follow you <laughs> just like disappear. And, uh, and I, it was like really loose gravel. I think it was just this kind of like lookout point that like some people walk out on to see the cool view. Yeah. Cause it really didn't make sense that we had to go that way, but we just kind of did. <laughs> and, um, and like I, I slipped on, on the loose gravel and like a couple rocks, like fell, you know, all, all the way down. And like, I felt myself fall to my death for like one moment, but it was like a moment long enough to like get the fear of death. And, uh, and I had to like go down on all fours to catch myself and, and balance myself with this like 55 pound back pack on my bag or 
on your back. Yeah. I'm on my back. Yeah. And, um, and then after that, it went from like this, like tough, but rewarding hike to like, we got to fucking get to camp. <laughs> like, <laughs> it turned, it turned, you know. All of a sudden the fun's gone out of it for a while. Well, well, or, or that was when it like really got fun. Yeah. Cause, uh, cause really there, there's something like medicinal about the fear of death. About right, like, yeah. like, like when you like legitimately get the fear of death, it, uh, it washes everything else away. It, it like, it like really clears your mind. And, uh, you know, you know, like, like if you want to get rid of the bullshit really easily, just like come face to face with your death, you know, and, and you'll put your priorities straight really quickly, really you, automatically. Cause you knew that if, if you actually slipped and fell off that you're dead. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Fuck. And, uh, but did, it, it was fine. I made it. <laughs> did you ever, did you ever have that sense that the hikers get when you're on a cliff and you just fuck feel like jumping? We talked uh, about that years ago on the podcast, Aaron, when I was out. When I'm up on buildings, sometimes I feel like jumping. Yeah. I can't remember. Yes. A, it's an effect. No, there's, a, there's a name for it. The call of the abyss. Is it? I don't know. I've had so, that fear of death a couple times, so. That kind of like Nietzschean vertigo? Is that? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, I, did, I did kind of, you know, when you get onto those like, cliffs there is something that that kind of draws you towards it because yeah, wonder what it would be like if you jumped off kind of yeah yeah but uh no but i i did have the sense when i did finally make it that like um i kind of wondered how more people don't die out there <laughs> and uh but most of them aren't as stupid as i am because like really it wasn't it, i i made a couple bad decisions to like do that much on the first day. Right. Right. And, uh, and to go like, because before we went into the fog, the warden at the hut, like told us about, she was like, there's four backpackers that are out there right now and they're lost and we're looking for them. So if you find them, bring them to shelter. <laughs> Did you find them? No, no, we Did didn't you find any sign. Imagine if it was like that fucking crazy Russian shit and you just found some fucking empty <laughs> tent and a bunch of crazy footprints. <laughs> right but uh, occasionally Dieter would like stop and just whistle really loudly and then just kind of stare into the abyss and smile mm -hmm. and uh he, he was this he was kind of a weird dude i could never i don't know if he didn't really speak english that much or if he was just like tripping as hard as i was because he never really said more than a couple words we were just kind of in it together without any language required wow that's pretty cool <laughs> it was kind of cool <laughs> but uh so that was day one and uh i took like an easy day after that i just hiked six kilometers to go to the hut that had a restaurant because i like wasn't sure that i was going to be able to do it because my feet were like destroyed i i limped six months six kilometers is, is what I did. It took like all day, not all day. It took a while though. I, I was limping on the trail and I wasn't sure that I could do 55 kilometers where I was going to have to ford glacial rivers and stuff. Yeah. So I just took a day where I could go get a hot meal and like think about what I've done. <laughs> you know, 
And uh, did did, you, I, did Dieter stay with you? No, he left. He took <laughs> us. He 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 went back to Munich or something. I don't know. <laughs> did you see any trolls? I heard about trolls. I didn't see any myself. I did see um, a couple rocks where elves live. Right. There's a lot of lore there in Iceland, eh? They like don't a lot of people believe in that stuff. Yeah, and I saw a documentary about it. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, some some of them, it's like they don't. They're not going to say like, "Yes, I believe in elves" because of the way the the kind of modern global society would sort of frown at it. And and you know, you want to have this kind of kind of healthy skepticism and not seem like like old fashioned and, and just believing old wives tales and stuff. But at the same time, uh, every single one of them has a story. And cause I, I would, that was like one of the things that I would, I would want to ask them about. And like, it's, it's, it's one of the things that everyone wants to ask them about when, when they go out there. So they're used to, to getting the question and they all have a story. And, uh, and some of it you, you really see because because like, like one of the more common stories is that when they're like building roads or building buildings or something, they like run into this huge stone and they need to move it and they try to move it and all their machinery breaks like the engine on the bulldozer just shuts down. They hit it with an axe, the axe shatters. And it's because elves live in that rock. And ask permission first or something like that. It gets, yeah, that's, that's what they do. They have psychic mediums that can communicate with them and they go in and like negotiate with the elves and see what they want. What do they get paid? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was one case, the elves uh, and the medium, the medium. (laughs) Can you just, can I just move to Iceland? You'll have to ask. Do you have to like emigrate? Was it tough to go there? Or was it fairly simple? I didn't need a visa to go there to visit. Um, it, was, it was it was very simple. I, I just went there. <laughs> just went there. Just a passport. Yeah, yeah. But to to immigrate, I'm sure it's a process. Get a Marianne. Because they uh, yeah they probably the, welcome new jeans. No, well, <laughs> there I, I know that there's a way to do it, but I know that they also um, protect Icelandic culture very much. And, and they do that with a well-deserved sense of pride because there's something very distinct about Iceland and Icelandic culture. And, and so they want, and, and especially with the influx of tourism, like there's all this construction in Reykjavik and it was all to build hotels because they don't even have the capacity to handle all the people that want to come now. Cause everyone is hearing about amazing. <laughs> So let's get back to the, the psychic and the L story for the interruption again. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, I did a tour in Reykjavik about ghosts and elves and spooky stuff. And, um, we saw this rock and, and the story with this rock was that it used to be kind of on the outskirts of the city and they were trying to build a house and, um, there were elves that lived in it and they, you know, they had the same issues. And so they, the psychic talked to the elves and they said, yeah, we'll move, but we want to move to a really cool part of the city. So they put them in like one of the like coolest, like swankest neighborhoods in downtown Reykjavik. 
and uh, like right in this corner of this park that had a playground in it. <laughs> and uh, and they were cool there, and everything was good. And uh, and and like you can, I have a picture of it. You can look at the rock, and you could see like this little like imprint in the rock that was in the shape of a door. And like, that was the door to their house that, that the elves lived in. And, uh, so some of the stuff like that, it's like, you, you see it with your own eyes and it's like, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard, I didn't see this one, but I heard another story of, of a family where they were like, yeah, we have, uh, elves and trolls that live on our land. We have, uh, we, we found a troll head in the river, uh, one spring. And it was like a rock in the shape of a troll head. Yeah. And, uh, and like they had, they told me about another stone they had that had like handprints and footprints in the stone, which doesn't make any type of sense conventionally, you know, if and they, yeah, if they're real and not just sort of pareidolia. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then like the whole, and when I was out on the hike too, I really like, I've never had such a strong sense that the earth is alive, like really truly alive, that it's like a living conscious feeling organism. And, uh, cause I mean, it's just, it's brimming with, with geothermal energy, with geomagnetic energy, that, that whole Island is a hotspot and it's very young too like geologically it's very young so it's still growing and changing and uh and you can feel it especially being out there isolated like uh, i was totally alone in the landscape for a fair amount of time on the hike and stuff and like when you have no other person there to kind of mirror your ego and remind you that you exist as a human being like uh you can feel it you can just, you, you start to sense it. And you, feel it. So you were on your own for a few days there on that hike? Uh, yeah. I mean, I did everything on my own. Yeah. I, it, was, it was a total solo. Besides trip. being with Dieter. As, aside, from, aside from Dieter. <laughs> so, so mm -hmm. what were you, you were going to make a point about uh, when you hiked in the Appalachians or whatever, when you hike there, you kind of hike a little bit and then you get this reward. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Well, in Iceland, there's not really many trees. So you're constantly perpetually rewarded for right. just existing in the place. Right. And like, I would be on the trail and like 360 degrees all around me, it would just look amazing. And, and like you, you, you want to constantly stomp and admire it, but then you never get anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, and it was so cool with, with the trail because I would like see the path snaking ahead of me for, for miles and miles and like, know that like, that's where I'm headed. And, and uh, I would occasionally see other, other hikers coming from the other direction, like see them from way far away. And it would like give me a sense of scale of like how big everything was. And, uh, and like there, there was also this really cool effect that would happen. Like, you know, when you're like, moving and you like see other parts of the landscape moving and then something is so big that it doesn't move and it like gives you that sense of how big it is yeah and uh i would be like like walking up a hill like as you as i would go up the hill like the hill would be moving and everything around it would be moving and then all the mountains in the background wouldn't be moving at all and as i would like come over the hill the new the new vista would emerge 
And so when I started to get that, it was like every single hill was exciting because it was a new grand epic view. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and, and on that hike too, on that trail, the landscape changed like every 10 kilometers, it would be something completely different. It went to like in Torsmark, there were some trees and it was like kind of forested. And then it became kind of a Canyon land. And then it turned into this lava field. It was like all this, all this it was just completely black. And I walked through this lava field for hours and hours. And then there was this lake. And then, uh, and then it went into these like kind of hilly landscapes that went up into the mountains again. And, uh, and then up in the mountains, I went through some glaciers. And then I came upon this, uh, these, these hills, well, they call them fells. And they were made of like, rhyolite and obsidian and they had all this geothermal activity and when the sun would shine on them they would they would like glow gold and rainbow like like all these different colors and uh and and there there are places where there's like this like hot spring with this like this like sulfur spring with like boiling water coming out of it and it's flowing like through the glacier like melting the ice it, it was so crazy and uh and there would be like little mud pots of like bubbling bubbling sulfuric mud and uh and it, it was just like so constantly beautiful yeah it, it, it was just like every every new turn was did you not just sorry go ahead did you sleep in the little hut we're looking at your facebook pictures right now <laughs> No, no, I didn't. Did no. you just sleep in your tent the whole time? Like, did you bring a I, tent and just stay in that? I, I slept in the tent. You wow. don't want to do the huts because the huts, they have like 16 bunks in one room. They smell like sex. <laughs> well, I wasn't even allowed in the huts. Was it cold? It was cold. It wasn't that bad. Like, Iceland is actually pretty mild. What's like not bad? What was it at going? What was it at night? Um, in Fahrenheit, it was like in the forties at night. So like probably like, what about in our language? Like five, six, five or six degrees. Yeah. Yeah. In Celsius, it was between like five and 11. Yeah. That's not bad. At night. But, but in general, Iceland is, Iceland is, yeah, no, but in general, Iceland is kind of mild. Their, Their winters are not as insanely cold as you might think because they're kind of protected by the jet stream. Yeah. And, and the ocean, yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's just it gets really dark. That's what it is. They don't get much sun in the winter. And uh but it's actually kind of quite mild. The 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 range of temperatures that they get there is is isn't too big. Um and like it it gets cold in the winter, but it doesn't get like insane Arctic cold. It's pretty cl- it's closer than I thought to to the UK. And Norway, it's kind of like right in, in the middle. Of yeah, yeah, it's kind of right there. So yeah. when when uh, the Ice Age melted back like 11,000 years ago, I wonder uh, what was going on up there. Like, was that, like, it, it must have, uh, it must have flooded quite a bit there. Like, didn't the whole <clears throat> UK, like 11,000 years ago, the whole, there was 300 feet of increased water or something like that in that area right be interesting to know what was around around that yeah there was um 
Yeah, I wonder if it was completely covered in ice or, or exactly what it looked like. There, uh, in in one of the books I had, it talked about some features in the northern part of the country um, that showed evidence of the end of the last ice age, and that was where I was trying to go after I went off the hike. And the bus routes weren't open yet <laughs> to go north in the in the way that I wanted to go. Um, because they were still trying to like the, the, all the roads aside from like the main highway, they have all these other roads that they just leave them as dirt roads because it gets glaciated during the winter. And so they're, they're very kind of seasonal. And so there's no point to even, to even pave it because it would just get eaten up by the earth. And, uh, and they hadn't, they hadn't opened up the, the path to the North yet. So I wasn't able to get there to, to see some of that stuff. Uh, but uh there's definitely there's definitely some stuff there because i i mean it, it was just in like one of the more touristy kind of books that i was looking at it wasn't even on on the kind of levels that we've talked about before it wasn't even close to those levels right, right. You know? so uh i definitely want to go back <laughs> yeah it sounds interesting <laughs> i want to go back yeah so what do you got planned now? You you and I were talking a few months back, actually quite a while ago. You were trying to decide whether to go down the sort of scientific route for school because you're you're quite the bright guy, or or if you should go down the more metaphysical route. And yeah, yeah, because my lifelong interest has always been uh, studying consciousness and studying human consciousness. And uh, so you and, get into parapsychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, and I, yeah, after we had, after the, uh, the, the trip where we visited y'all last summer, um, that was actually one of the things when, when, I, when I was coming back and, and, and reflecting on that, um, I kind of started to move to this place in my life where I wanted to, I wanted to really like, not just be like a guy on the internet. But, uh, but like do, or, or, you know, just be like reading about stuff on the internet and not making much out of it, but, but to actually do real research. And, right, uh, right. and, and so I'm, uh, so I started to move towards, uh, going to school and stuff. And originally I was thinking that I might have to go to, go to a kind of a conventional grad school and, and go in as kind of like a double agent. Like, like not really tell them what some of my opinions might be and uh, get the accreditation and then, you know, roundly destroy my reputation when I started talking about human consciousness and parapsychology. Because <laughs> that's what happens, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I was fortunate enough to find this wonderful program that's just an hour away from me in Carrollton at the University of West Georgia, where they teach what they call humanistic psychology. And they take this kind of full perspective view of psychology where they don't just like teach you the DSM, but you can take classes on Jung, on meditation, on Eastern mysticism, on, on parapsychology. And uh, parapsychology in particular is like one of my more special interests that I'm kind of trying to point myself kind of vaguely towards. Um, and I don't really like the term parapsychology 
because it's like paranormal psychology. It implies that it's something abnormal. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just psychology. Um, it's, it's something that's very natural. Uh, but it's unconventional to the current ways of thinking. And cause, cause right now we're very kind of imprisoned by this type of materialism that wants to describe everything in physical terms and disbelieve the existence of anything that could possibly exist outside of those terms. Yeah. I was going to ask you that where you thought, where you thought that the mainstream, our paradigm falls short as far as consciousness goes. Um, well, it's, it's, I think it's kind of right on these terms of, uh, I think we're kind of imprisoned by materialism and it's a very, um, it's a very seductive prison because it works yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like it, it makes perfect sense and it's, and it's very logical. It's very rational and you can do a whole lot by sticking with, okay, you know, this is a thing that I can look at, that I can touch, that I can feel. This is a thing that I can do basic math with. It works. It always works, you know? And, um, but I'm not entirely convinced that the universe is actually rational or that nature is actually rational. Um, when you really look at neuroscience, when you really look at what modern neuroscience is starting to tell us about the way the brain works, specifically the way that the hemispheres work, rationality is a thing that just exists inside of our left hemisphere. It's just a thing we do inside of our head. And uh, it's not necessarily a thing that is a property of the entire universe. And, and I, I think sometimes the, the, the skeptical materialists, they kind of put the cart before the horse where they could explain everything if they didn't have to explain the fact that you and I are conscious and aware. Yeah. Besides that, everything makes sense to them. Yeah. That's just an illusion. Yeah. And, and some of them actually try to, their, their logic leads them to this point where they want to say that it's an illusion. And, yeah. and, and it's, no, actually, it's the only thing that you really know is that you're aware. And now, now I, I hear that they're, they're creating altered states through, let's say, mechanical means or let's through, uh, scientific means in, in people's brains. And now it's seems to me like it's pushing them towards, well, this is causation and not necessarily just because, because we because I can create a, a similar experience in your brain, like an OBE mm-hmm. or, or in your consciousness, like an OBE by, like the, by like fucking the, with your brain or whatever. Yeah. Like the God helmet. Yeah. Do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, or you give someone DMT and, and that happens. I guess. I mean, I was thinking more purely um, lab, lab style. Yeah, yeah. Lab style stuff, but you know that that all of a sudden that that means that um, that that your brain is causing that. You know, when yeah. I don't, I don't think you can just say that. It just just because you can create something similar to an OBE doesn't mean that your brain creates an OBE. Yeah, and they because their their model is that the brain creates consciousness and. It's, this is what's known as David Chalmers defined this as the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. 
There's, there's soft problems of consciousness and there's hard problems of consciousness. The soft problems of consciousness is stuff that we're actually pretty good at, at answering those questions. And that's about like the kind of neural correlates of like how you do pattern recognition and, and how you, how your senses work and, and those types of connections that go on. The hard problem of consciousness is how does it, where does it actually come from? Yeah. <laughs> like, cause it's, cause like, is a neuron conscious uh, at what level or, or does it take two neurons to, for something to be consciousness or is it, is it not two? Is it some kind of critical mass of a hundred or, you know, when you reach some power of 10 and, and that's, and that's the kind of, it's 42, <laughs> you know, but, but that's the kind of model that they kind of work with right now. They, there's this kind of assumption that like, the transhumanists and and the materialists want to make that it's really just a matter of complexity and that once our computation reaches the necessary level of complexity, then we can start producing consciousness and that it's, and that it is just this kind of like purely emergent physical thing. Yeah. yeah. And again, with, with logic and rationality, there's something very, very, seductive about coming to that conclusion it's kind of it's kind of an easy conclusion to make you can see it really clearly but i'm not i'm not convinced that it's it's really that simple i I don't just because of the kind of primacy of awareness that is so obvious if you just pay attention for a second yeah you know and um and so it's a real problem and and there because like you know the in the EU, they just approved this like multi-billion euro project where they want to, they, they say they're going to simulate an entire human brain with one processor for each neuron. And they say they're going to do it in 10 years. And like, I'm looking at it and it just seems like, it seems like a joke because we don't even, we can't even simulate one, one neuron to its full capability, you know? And then here these guys are thinking we're going to simulate an entire brain and that we're going to upload our consciousness into computers and that our brain is a computer. And it just seems like these people are just trapped in their own metaphor. And, uh, yeah, I'm missing that we're all really connected. Well, that it's more complex than binary logic. Yeah, like nature is more complex than than true or false, one or zero. And we've known this for a hundred years, ever since quantum physics emerged. We've known this, that it's not true or false, it's true, false, or maybe. And, but we've, we've been so seduced by the power of our digital binary computers that we think if we can just reach this high enough level of complexity that we'll have this singularity moment where all of intelligence reigns over the universe. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fun mythology, but, uh, I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't agree with the reality of consciousness and it doesn't agree with the reality of physics either. And, um, and it's, and I think it's a very serious question that this question is, is, the this is the threshold of whatever the new paradigm is that that we're moving towards it's it's this question of this interaction between consciousness and physics 
because we don't, there, there is no model for this that, that has emerged. We, we don't know how to talk about it. We're, we're, our, our language kind of limits us in, in and of itself between like nouns and verbs and that, and that separation, you know, um, they, they did a poll of all the world's top physicists a few years ago, asking them what they thought the correct interpretation of quantum physics was. And they got 16 different responses. The most popular response was the Copenhagen interpretation, which that's the one that, that says it depends on whether it's a wave or a particle, depending on what you want it to be, depending on, on, on your conscious choice. And that got like 30 something percent. And that was the most popular. And so the thing to take away from that is that no one knows what's going on. With, with physics. So, you know, when, when CERN tells you that they found the God particle and that they're about to have a theory of everything, it's just, it's just like their own little story that they're telling. Cause it's not as simple as that. And, and there's something really big that we're missing. And, and it's not the question of where mass comes from. It's the question of where consciousness comes from. And, uh, and there, the, there are some really interesting emerging models that I've been getting into. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you what's resonating with you as far as like, what's your <clears throat> sense of what may be. Well, all that. well, one of the, there's one guy named Roger Penrose uh -huh. who is a very, very highly renowned British physicist. He's yeah. done a lot of really incredible work on black holes, on gravitation, on, quantum physics. Um, he, he wrote this, he's written some, he's written a lot of books. He wrote this one book called the road to reality that <laughs> I tried to get through this book and I'm still kind of working on it, but, uh, it starts with basic arithmetic and it ends with like super string theory <laughs> <laughs> and it takes you step by step there in like a thousand pages. And, uh, I got about 400 pages into it before I didn't know what he was doing anymore. And, uh, I was, I was pretty impressed with myself for getting 400 pages through it because it got, it got weird really fast. Like before I even got through a hundred pages, it was already past like all the math I ever, I ever did. Um, but anyway, he, he had this, he has this kind of working theory that he developed with this anesthesiologist. And you think about an anesthesiologist, his job is to put you in and out of waking consciousness. Yeah. So he's, you know, I know you're talking and, about. Yeah. And um, they came up with this idea that it, the, this question has to do with, uh, with some kind of quantum activity going on in the nervous system and in the brain. And, they targeted microtubules because of something about their molecular structure. It provided for the right type of quantum indeterminacy that they were looking for. And, and so they're, you know, they're looking for that bridge between consciousness and the indeterminacy of, of quantum physics, you know, with like that idea that like with our conscious intent, with our will, we can kind of nudge those probabilities in the directions that we choose to. 
Yeah. He, it was with Stuart Hammerhoff, right? Who was in, I think he was in What the Bleep Do We Know as well. Um, Stuart Hammerhoff was the guy. Was, was, was that his name? Is that the anesthesiologist? I, I'm, I'm forgetting his yeah, name right I think so, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that, University that, of Arizona? Maybe. Well? Yeah. Maybe. Right, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's one that's interesting, but they don't have it really fully fleshed out. It's just this kind of suggestion <clears> that, well, maybe it's something like this, you know. Um, another one that, that I find really interesting is um, uh, the guy, this guy is named Dr. Edwin C. May, and he was the director of the U.S. government's psychic spying program for a number <laughs> of years where they were using remote viewers to figure out where like Soviet nuclear silos and stuff were Stargate and not Stargate, but, um, psychic spying. Uh, and they had success, but they didn't know how they had success, (laughs) but they had success. And, uh, and their program got defunded by the, by the government, but he continued to do research and, um, he recently published a textbook called Extrasensory Perception. And that was actually how I found the school that I'm going to because I, I read the book and in the back it had like a list of researchers and I found this parapsychologist in Georgia. I was like, what the hell are you doing in Georgia? <laughs> and, uh, and that was how I found the school and everything. Um, but he, the, like the first half of the book was the history of, remote viewing and stuff. And then the second half was all these models for how it might work. And one of the more interesting ones had to do with entropy because what they noticed was that, um, remote viewing would work better when the thing they were trying to remote view was something that had a high amount of entropy and, uh, something that had a high amount of what we might term disorder or chaos, although I don't really like using those terms to describe entropy. Entropy is kind of a weird concept. It's this strange kind of mathematical abstraction that we do when we're trying to mathematically describe a system and all of the agents that is that are contained in it. But so they would have an easier time remote viewing something like an underground nuclear test than they would something like what card is under the hat. Because if you think about it, like trying to remote view, whether it's a ace of spades or an eight of hearts, uh, it's, it's, hat, there's not much. It's, it's like a disturbance in the force or something in a way. Yeah, like if, if, it really is. It really is. And, and there's not much there. You got to be really good to notice that subtle disturbance in the force for a deck of cards. Whereas trying to figure out exactly where the Soviets just, detonated a nuclear weapon it might be a little bit easier to detect that with your with your psychic capabilities and and out of that and out of some other really interesting work there there is um this researcher named dr robin robin carhart harris who's working in london and he's doing really awesome stuff looking at psychedelics and how psychedelics work on the brain And what they've found is that when they use magnetic encephalography to measure brain activity, when you're in a psychedelic state, there appears to be higher entropy going on in the brain in those elevated states of consciousness. 
And so they came up with this entropic model for consciousness in the brain where our, our, our sort of scales of what we talk about for whether we're, we're conscious or unconscious, whether we're awake or asleep, it's not, again, it's not like a binary thing, but it's kind of a sliding scale dependent upon the entropy in the activity of our brain. And so when, you, when you're asleep, when you're in a coma, there's less activity, there's less entropy. When you're in your normal waking state, you're just below what they call criticality. And past criticality is where you have um, high-level psychedelic states. It's where you have spiritual states. It's where you have seizures. It's where you have those, those expansive levels of consciousness that we don't know how to describe. And they are able to kind of develop this model that connects it with entropy. And entropy is such a, I've been trying to, ever since I, I read about this, I've been trying to really figure out exactly what entropy is. And it is one of the most mysterious concepts I've, I've ever come across. Because it's not really a, a, a thing. It's not really a force. It's this strange mathematical abstraction that we came up with to describe systems. And um, like, if you have like a a data environment on a computer, you can very easily kind of quantify exactly the entropy of all the agents in your system because you have all the, all of the information, but in, in nature and in the real world, we don't. So we don't have any kind of way to, to talk about absolute entropy. We just talk about relative entropy. And when we talk about relative entropy, it's arbitrary depending upon the scale that we're talking about, because you have to quantify what the agents in the system are. And so that could be individual atoms. It could be individual molecules. It could be individual people in a society. And, and it, all depends on, it all depends on the use of your calculation and, and what you're doing. So it's this kind of arbitrary thing. But there are also these like hard thermodynamic principles behind it that entropy always increases. And, um, and you can then connect that to some really interesting models for exactly what, what life is and how life works. Because that's another big question that we don't really know how to answer yet is exactly what the hell life is and what it means to be alive. And there's a really interesting researcher named Dr. May Wan Ho who she developed this model with, with some of her people where they, they start to look at living systems. Part of it is that they look at living system as in, living systems as entropy exporters that they use metabolism and all of these organic arrangements of molecules to export the entropy out of their system, out into the environment. You know, so, so when, when we're respirating, when we're metabolizing, we're trying to create as much coherence and order in our organism as possible and export as much disorder and huh. chaos as possible. And, and that's the struggle to, to live. It's the fight against entropy. And, and so, so when you die, that's when you eventually lose that battle and entropy finally overtakes your system and you lose coherence. Well, it's interesting. I wonder if the, all that 
Eastern mysticism about breathing in, uh, breathing in the good and like letting out the bad and all it is some way to focus that intent or some way to make that happen on a grander scale. Yeah. Yeah. I I think there absolutely is a, is a connection there. And and when you look at like how they describe the, the, the purpose of yoga and, and how it's to, you know, kind of align all of these energetic systems in your body um, and, and get your chi flowing correctly. It's to create coherence in the system. Mm -hmm. And, and then you start to, then you can start to talk about this idea of kind of quantum coherence in the actual kind of living tissue of your body. And the more coherent the alignment of everything is in your tissue and your molecules and your cells, the more you can kind of wield that living force, that living chi. And like, that's what those masters would do. Well, even that heart math stuff shows that the coherence of the, what is it? The electromagnetic spectrum of your heart changes depending on your state of being right. And love or hate, like you can create, you can create more coherence in a state of love. Like why, you know, isn't any of this talked about, right? There's, isn't it pretty much the studies show it, they prove it pretty much at that. You can do that. You can change it. So it's, uh, it's weird how it's just all swept under the rug. Anything that doesn't fit this materialistic paradigm is kind of just pushed in a bucket for, for some, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's this weird kind of dogma that, that goes around it. And, uh, and well, cause you know, it is this kind of slippery slope because once you like realize that one of these things is true and you actually realize that it's true, it, it takes you down this slippery slope of realizing how much else is true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous to, to the current ways of thinking. Yeah. And, and like, you know, not, I don't, I don't think that many people are, are, as aware of it as they should be, but like the scientific establishment today is very, very corrupt because it's so wrapped up in government money and, and corporate money. And you have all these people whose jobs rely on these theories being correct, who can blame them. And, and, and it works to a certain degree. It it works very, very well. It's gotten us this global civilization. So it, it works for, for something. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we we even start talking about this with Corey Powell in our interview coming up here. We talk a little bit about the science becoming a religion and all that and and about uh yeah, just the dogma around it as well. And we get into some of the new technologies coming up and uh, we kind of talk about what's out there for technological capabilities as well and what's been suppressed if anything and and what's like sort of on the horizon. It's uh that's a pretty good chat. Have you considered mm-hmm. coming up north with uh, Brad and Randall again this summer? Um, I would, I would love to. I'm, I think they're uh, going to Washington in August or September sometime. Oh wow! I uh, well, I'm starting up school in September. Uh, uh, and yeah. I, I'm, I, I kind of uh, spent what spending money I have in Iceland. <laughs> yeah, you got to recharge. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I got to recharge, and and I'm and I'm shifting my focus towards uh like starting to shift into like okay i'm I'm gonna be in school again yeah yeah and, yeah. Uh, and, and, and everything Man, I, would, I, would, f- I, would, I would love to come up again 
Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, after you've been in school for a semester or two. And, and yeah, we'll have you on for again. a full like, show. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. almost, yeah. this is practically a full show, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've been going like a little bit over an hour. Yeah. 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 Yeah, oh, so we, it flew by though. It yeah, absolutely flew by. I don't yeah. think we'll just skip the quote and everything. That's we should. Okay. We should. Uh, can you send us some of your music for? Uh, for oh any, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually also. Um, I I have the goal before I start school of finishing up this album that I've been working on for like two to three years. Nice. Can you get yeah. us a sneak peek for the show then, or what? Yeah, yeah. I can send you something. It's. Uh, I don't have anything mastered yet. Send but, me two songs. Yeah, yeah, I, I can send you some stuff that that, that you could use. Yeah, um, and I need it yeah. right away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm tonight. starting editing as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> so this is going to release probably tomorrow sometime. Tomorrow okay. or Sunday, I don't know. Now I'm going fucking stampeding. Oh yeah, jeez. All bets are off. All bets are off. Do we have well, anything we really got to get into? No, before we, we just got to talk power? about. Uh, I we guess. could just do this. No, 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 just shut that off. I've given that to a few people for their ringtone. Uh-huh. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, we just got to say thanks to everybody for supporting the show. And, and oh, yeah, uh, check out grandamerica.ca slash support. I got some t-shirts in. And uh, check out all the different options there on how to keep us ad sponsors, bullshit free. There's a, there's a picture of the t-shirts on our Instagram now, so you can search our Instagram, and you can also see some pictures of uh, the... Graham's Rave. Graham's rave, yep. Uh, the astral, oldest, astral harvest. We yeah. the oldest guy at the rave. No, there's fucking families and old people there. I told you, man. I wasn't the oldest guy. I'm only 45. <laughs> Jeez. It's everywhere. And I, I don't have anything to really plug, although I do have vague plans to um, have a website and a blog once I really kind of start to do real work where, where I'm going to start to like put these thoughts down on the paper. I'll give you really, a page. Really, really well, well organized. Yeah. When, when I get that launched, we should do another, we should do another oh, show. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll if get Bill ever, on too. We'll yeah. have you and Bill together or something. If you ever want an outlet, man, just let me know and I'll make you a blog at Grey America. Okay. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, uh, it was cool. Well, you should uh, post some more of your Facebook, your Iceland pictures on your Facebook so I can creep them. Yeah, I need to. I need to post more. I took like fourteen hundred pictures, and I didn't take enough. <laughs> yeah, because I think there's only like and, fifteen uh, on your Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm going through. I'm trying to post just the best ones, and uh, it's uh, I'm it takes a while. Yeah, yes. I'm also trying to like get back to my normal life, and it it all it, it take, takes a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, big thanks to Brian, and uh, enjoy the chat with Corey Powell. And, it's a uh, fun one. Yeah, happy, uh, happy World Disclosure Day today. Is it? Yeah. What does that mean? It means uh, on <laughs> it's a uh, it's a day where the nation comes happen. forward to finally and formally acknowledge the extraterrestrial presence. The date will then become World Disclosure Day. It's sixty nine years today since that Roswell uh, thing on July eighth, with Roger oh. Roger Ramey presenting at. Uh, the crash site so that's good <laughs> <laughs> all right that's guys all I got. enjoy the chat with Corey thanks
All right, so tonight we've got Corey S. Powell here. He's a, he's the science editor at Aeon Mag, and he's a contributing editor and blogger at Discovery Mag. Actually, I think he's worked for Discovery for a long time. And he wrote, uh, over a decade ago, he wrote uh, God in the Equation, How Einstein Became the Prophet of the New Religious Era. And uh, we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff, um, sort of outer space and astrophysics and all this stuff and we're super excited uh, this is kind of darren's one of darren's main interests so we're really happy to have you on the show Corey. thanks for coming on <laughs> hey uh what could be better than open time to talk about the, the biggest ideas in the universe uh, that's right and the stuff that you love chatting about absolutely exactly an exciting time too an exciting time um maybe to start off with could you just give our listeners maybe a quick rundown of uh of kind of your your career and how you got into this. I know I've heard you uh, write about uh, you became interested in astronomy and stuff like that at, when you were way, six way or back, seven. Yeah. yeah, maybe just give us a rundown of of how you got to be where you are today. Oh yeah, so I was I was a total science kid. Um, this was just it was one of those things it, when I realized it was, it was there, I just fell in love with it. Uh, you know, I think it was I was doing a, a class report in second grade. And it was my first exposure to astronomy, and I was reading about the planets. Like, ooh, it's like they're like other worlds out there. They're all weird, and some of them are all gassy, and some of them are all covered with craters. I don't know. It just uh, it totally captured my imagination. And you know, when you're when you're a kid, you know, six, seven, eight, you know, years old, you know, you can read all those little books, and every detail sticks in your head. Uh, you know, all the time I'm. I'm doing reporting, the, you know, as an adult, and I think, I wonder how I know that. Oh yeah, I guess I think I learned that when I was seven. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, like, like about half of all the things I know, I learned from reading kids' books when I was in elementary school. If you could somehow like capture that, like from like seven to twelve, where you're just so malleable and you're just, if you could like peel that out, man, and sell that, <laughs> uh, you'd be a billionaire. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's all, all those people who are doing brain research, uh, you, know, you know, trying to tap into your know, brain plasticity. Man, if there were a way to make my brain the way it was when I was seven years old, that would be awesome. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I I, uh, I followed probably a you know a not incredibly unusual career arc. Uh, you know, I got to I got to college, and you know, I had all this kind of fascination with it with astronomy and physics. And yeah, you know, then really started buckling down to do the hard work, and discovered that what I really I loved the stories of science, but uh, actually having to sit down and do it, you know, it, it takes a it takes a special kind of personality. It takes a you know a, a focus and a patience, and you know if you're a little bit kind of you know ADD ish and all over the place, and you know your curiosity keeps moving you in different directions, turns out that's actually not a great personality <laughs> for doing science. <laughs> Um, but it is it it is a great personality for talking to scientists and for and for uh, going into journalism. So it never even occurred to me until after I graduated that you know there was such a thing as science journalism. You know that somebody actually made these radio shows and TV shows and magazines and things like that. Um, and so I kind of poked into that world and discovered that you know. It was uh, this was exactly what I loved. You know, it was it was all this all this knowledge. It was also storytelling, and it was a bunch of other people who were basically science dropouts like myself, who uh, you know had sort of gone through the same experience. So we were this you know these kindred spirits. And so then you know I've you know you you read off a, a little bit of my 
of my bio, um, I was uh, on the board of editors at Scientific American for about eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the that's the very that's the serious stuff. That's where you're you know working with scientists who were you know near honored just to be invited. And you know, it's a very it's a it's a very uh, sort of very high end kind of thing. <coughs> I spent a bunch of years at, at Discover Magazine, which is working more with journalists, getting to do uh, sort of a, a wider range of stories, including uh, you know some of the some of the loopier stuff that uh, Scientific American folks you know, turn up their nose at. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, about uh, about four years ago, I left I left Discover, and I've done a number of different projects. So I was a consulting editor at. American Scientist magazine. I was doing a bunch of freelance work. I, uh, I just, you know, about about six months ago, I started this job at Aon as their science editor, and I've been working on a series of books with Bill Nye, the Science Guy. So I'm kind of, I'm trying, I'm I'm trying to be in as many different places as I can. Uh, after many many years of being just kind of like you know an office an office worker, very focused on you know putting out one magazine, Discover Magazine. Uh, it, it's kind of nice to be, you know, just to be able to chase anything that, that catches my interest right now. Yeah. It sounds fascinating because you, you must be able to step back a ways and, and look at it from a multidisciplinary approach as, as opposed to having to drill deep into one, one certain thing, you know, you get to sort of play around with all kinds of different things. Well, yeah, that's look, I mean, that, that is the, uh, that's the great fun of being in the media world. You know, the downside is that often the paycheck is terrible. But uh, you know, as long as you can, you know, as long as you can eat, or if you happen to have a wife who's a doctor, which I happen to have, um, <laughs> which is extremely convenient, um, and not just for the prescriptions. Uh, the <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's a look. It, it's a. I feel like you know, this is a. It's a. It's a very. I call it a, it's sort of a luxurious life to be able to just kind of Wi-Fi's down. What? Our Wi-Fi's down. Mine shows it being down actually right now. How does that happen? I don't know. It must be his then, maybe. Oh, that's not my Wi-Fi. That's the Skype Wi-Fi. Are you back, Corey? But now you jiggled. Oh, I thought I heard a noise. Yeah, I, oh. I'm, not, I'm not sure what happened there. I, I lost you there for a second. Yeah. Okay, we're back. Okay. Okay, so we lost you. We lost you at um, something about being a fascinating. Luxurious, luxurious life. Uh, yes, uh, just lounging in the in the hot tub of ideas, <laughs> which is basically it's what I do. It's a nice life, as long as you can figure out how to do it and eat. Well, it's an interesting time too, with with the amount of stuff that's going on in our own solar system lately, and and all the new technologies coming, you know, coming along in the search for exoplanets. Like you must be just right in the wheelhouse right now. It, it really is, and you know, and my background is in both uh, history of science and and kind of astronomy and physics. And so, when you look back, when you take the historical perspective, you know, the idea, you know, the ancient Greeks were wondering about 
you know, are other are, are stars, other suns, are there other, you know, are there other worlds, are other worlds inhabited? I mean, these these are questions that are thousands of years old. The idea that that right here, right now, this is the time that we're we're actually getting the answers, and you know, we get you, you we all have this this front row seat to see as the you know, like how the scientists are grappling with it and what it looks like when you get the first clues. It's a pretty remarkable time. Do you uh, do you have any sort of favorite thing right now you're following real close? Well, look, there. I mean, there there's some things that are just that are that are always fun. Uh, yeah, I think the uh, search for life on other worlds and the way that search has shifted from just the assumption, that, oh well, Mars is the only place in the solar system where you would look, to people thinking about Europa oh, yeah. and thinking about Enceladus. And even thinking about Titan yeah. and realizing that, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need a planet. Maybe you need a moon. You don't necessarily need, a, you know, a world with an atmosphere. The, you know, the life might live underground or, or in a buried ocean. I mean, a lot of these just kind of like baseline assumptions of what alien life is and where you <laughs> look for it have changed radically really just in the past decade or two. And so, you know, the, I mean, the fact that NASA is, you know, pretty well geared up to to go to Europa. Uh, you have several people in Congress who are really, really into it, who are pushing the funding for it. So, you know, it's a it's a thing that looks like it's really practically going to happen. That's pretty amazing. I mean, in fact, we have this Cassini spacecraft uh, zipping around Saturn and every day returning these like these mind blowing images and information about these these ice moons. You know, these are these are things that, you know, you look back, you know, to the, the 1940s, 1950s, these articles that were in like Collier's magazine and Life magazine uh, when people were imagining the space age. And, you know, it was it was it was kids fantasy. Uh, you know, they, they, it was packaged for adults, but it was a sense of we're probably never really going to see this stuff, but it would be really cool to think about it. And now we're there. It's happening, uh, you know, in sort of in one human lifetime. Do you think uh, we're another human lifetime away from being able to access these worlds with any real, you know, usable speed? Well, so this is, you're asking me what I'm excited about right now. One of the things I'm really excited about is uh, this thing called the, the Breakthrough Starshot. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's um, uh, the, the, the Breakthrough Institute is, uh, it's, it's a group of people uh, including this Russian billionaire named Yuri Milner. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And, and, of course and, his and, name's and, Yuri. Yes, of course his name is Yuri. And uh, and Stephen Hawking yeah. is you know, is signed on with them. And so their first program, their first project was they were trying to do a big fundraiser for for a SETI program for listening for possible signals from alien life. Um, the second big project that they're pushing, the one they're pushing right now, is this thing called Breakthrough Starshot. And the idea is to try to send uh, a, a space probe to another star, probably to Alpha Centauri, uh, accelerate it to 10% speed of light. So basically be able to get to Alpha Centauri in the lifetime of somebody who's alive right now mm. uh, to build the technology, to launch it, and to get it, get it there and get the signal back, let's say, within the next you know, 60 to 70 years. Um, and... That's actually a feasible project. 
you know, there's a lot of crazy interstellar travel stuff out there, you know, warp drives and M- impossible M-drive. space drives and M drives and all the, you know, so, so, some, some of it's, some of it is, is vaguely possible. Some of it is completely impossible. This is a project that's actually totally rooted in real existing technology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's at the far edge of what we can do, but it's all 100% real. And the, you know, the cost of doing it is, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, a, a billion or maybe a few billion dollars, which is, you know, a lot of money for a person or even like a single philanthropist. But, you know, it's, you know, if you took one quarter of one year's NASA budget, you could probably do it. So it's not a crazy number. And, you know, could we ever see these worlds? I think we could. I mean, I think, you know, if you re- if we really sort of got behind this kind of thing, we could have live images beaming back from the Alpha Centauri system, you know, 50 or 60 years from now. So what kind of technology would be on those little little spacecraft to, to send? Uh, like, like, what kind of measuring equipment would you have? Well, so... <laughs> it's like it's it's cool because it requires sort of changing the way you think about every aspect of a of a space mission. Uh, you can't build a rocket that will go ten percent the speed of light. So the idea is that you would do it with a a, a laser powered light sail. Yeah. Uh, essentially, you know, you have a giant space kite and you have a giant laser array on the ground, and you blast your kite with it with a laser beam and the energy you know, the actual the momentum of the of the laser beam itself accelerates this thing incredibly fast and then at the center of that sail you need to be as light as possible so you have uh what they call a chipset it would be a, a space probe that is maybe i don't know it's it's at, at most it would be the size of an iphone it might be more like the size of like a like a you know like a saltine cracker um you know, it, it's basically it's a it's a little solid state probe that has a camera, that has uh, a a laser transmitter, and has a you know sort of a few other simple types of instrumentation, and it's entirely solid state because when you launch that thing to one tenth of light speed, uh, I did the calculation. It, you it, you hit it at something like I think it's between a thousand and ten thousand g's of acceleration, so. That thing needs to be really, really tough. <laughs> um, but you know, again, it sounds kind of crazy. But you know, the military. Uh, how, sorry, how quick does it get to light speed? That, how quick does it get to one tenth light speed? Uh, it gets to one tenth light speed in, uh, I think, less than five minutes. Holy fuck! <laughs> and the reason you have to do that is because since it doesn't have an onboard rocket, you're accelerating it with the laser on the ground. Uh, but of course, as it's Shooting away your laser beam, it, it very quickly gets out of range of your laser beam because it's, it, you're accelerating it so fast. So it, it, you're, you're you're kind of like you're like a dog chasing your tail. You know, the faster you accelerate it, the faster it gets out of range, and so the bigger your laser has to be. Mm. So if you want this thing to work, you have to really, really blast it with a crazy laser and do a lot of the acceleration very, very quickly while it's still close to Earth. So, that'd, so that'd be like twenty thousand miles a second, approximately. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> which, well, look, it's 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 kind of crazy, but like I said, it, it's it, it is, but it's kind of crazy that's built on nothing but real things, and every step along the way, you would learn something amazing in trying to do it. Uh, you know, in trying to, you know, figure out how to build a more effective 
uh, laser sail and how to build the kind of ground-based laser array that you would need to do this and how to build the tiny space probe that you would need to do this. Each of those things is an interesting and useful technology all by itself. And so if the whole project completely fails, if it turns out there are some, there's some problems that you just didn't account for, each of the components is actually still a worthwhile project. And that's the other thing I find interesting about it. Kind of crazy seems to bring out the best in us, too, sometimes. You know, it seems to be our thing. Look, pe- people love crazy, and right now they're chasing destructive crazy. I'd rather they be chasing, you know, constructive crazy. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if, you're gonna, if people are going to want to do crazy things, let them do crazy things that are, you know, exciting and aspirational, not, uh, you know, let's tear each other to pieces crazy. And, and it really would change the way, like, those type of discoveries really would change the way we we behave on this planet. Well, like, then, it would change the whole paradigm of... After you know, that, you could have your own ship with your own laser attached to it, and you just shoot <laughs> yourself all over the place. Oh, well, listen, so here, I, I, I'm very into this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play out the scenario a little further. So because the, the laser array is on the ground, and the thing you're launching is basically, it's essentially a sheet of very thin aluminum foil, or mylar, basically. It's a giant mylar kite, and a, and a tiny little chipset in the middle. The thing you're launching is actually dirt cheap. All the money is, goes into this enormous laser array you're building on the ground. So the cost of, build, of launching a thousand of these is not that much different than the cost of launching one of them. The huge investment is the stuff you build on the ground. Once you build that thing, you can just you just keep shooting things off. And so you know, hey, you know, you don't worry if, if one of them fails. Doesn't matter. Send ten of them. Send a hundred. Send a thousand of them to Alpha Centauri, and and you know, see or what you all know. over the place at that, you know. Or right, or all yeah. You just start sending them in every direction, and you know, and they'll reach different stars at different times, and you know, maybe ninety percent of them will fail, and it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it, it it totally changes the way you think about space travel, and then again, you think about you know, what are the stories that are coming back, uh, where every year. You know, we're seeing planets around another star. You know, you know the the stories that you're reading about in the you know, the, you know the, the science section of your website or whatever people are going to be reading by then. You know, the story is oh you know uh, t- today uh, you know, we're expecting first images in from Tau City where we think there might be you know another Earth. Yeah, the, uh, I mean that could, that kind of news could be routine, right? You know, and that would, it, that's it, the it, kind it, of news I would take like. If, few years to get here like alpha centauri that message will take four years right because we still couldn't jump we still can't exactly. beat that light speed right do you uh, think yeah. there's a way around that uh if there is that i'm quite certain i'm not gonna see in my lifetime uh you know i there there are enough weird things in the world and a lot and enough sort of sort of uncharted corners of, of our theory that i would never say faster than light travel is impossible but it's certainly it's it's entirely outside any kind of theory, any kind of physics that we know right now. And you know, any you know, all all of these existing ideas about uh, about sort of how you build a warp drive and things like that. I feel like they're you know, these these are sort of like cartoon and tinker toy versions of a theory. I mean, they're 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 hunches more than anything else. And you know, look, I'm not smart enough to tell you whether or not any of them are right, but I can tell you with great confidence that. Nobody on this planet is, has good reason to think that they're right. So I was actually reading something yours today that was talking about how some of these these uh, little 
uh, Kepler, how they, um, it kind of detects the darkening of stars, how some of that might not actually be planets, but dark energy. Um, Is I understanding that right? I'm, uh, hold on, I'm not sure. It it sounds like maybe two different stories mixed together, but um, tell me, tell me again. It could be. I think it was the one about dark energy. Oh, well, well, look, I mean, dark energy, you want to talk about things that nobody understands. Uh, basically, d- dark energy, the whole term is just, is essentially, you know, it's a, it's a fudge. It's, a, it's sort of a smokescreen to hide the fact of we don't really know what it is. It's an energy. We don't see it. I've now told you basically everything we know about it. <laughs> um, it it's, uh, you know, the uh, I, I did uh, that uh, that that book that I wrote about uh, about uh, so about Einstein and sort of you know, kind of like scientific mysticism was actually inspired by the original discovery of dark energy and by talking to some of the researchers who who are working on it and yeah you know, the discovery of dark energy uh, this was a total serendipitous discovery these are people who were trying to do in a sense of a very boring kind of experiment which was uh, they're trying to measure how the universe is running down. They're, the idea is, you know, oh, there's a big bang, and now everything's flying apart, but gravity is kind of pulling everything back, and so it must be running slower and slower. And the question was, well, is the universe going to stop, or is it just going to keep going? And so then there's this very, very difficult, really tedious work you have to do to figure out um, how the expansion rate of the universe is changing over time. So... You know, it, it basically fell to graduate students who, you know, who had, yeah, who at the who at the time and who were willing to put up with the uh, the the tedium of trying to do this, this work, and so they're like, okay, well, so how fast are things slowing down? Well, they start they start uh, doing the study, like, well, they're not really slowing down very fast. In fact, they don't really seem to be slowing down at all. <laughs> In fact, they seem to be speeding up, um, and. You know, that seemed very weird at first because the way it's slowing down basically tells you they're, tra- they're trying to weigh the universe. How much does the universe weigh? And the faster it slows down, the, the, the heavier it is, the more there is here. And as they're measuring it, they're realizing finally they get to zero. It's not slowing down at all. And so one of them says, uh, so I guess like we're not here. There's, the universe is empty. It's not slowing down. And then, it started, then they start getting these negative numbers. And then the, that's when they realize we're actually looking at something totally different. We're looking at a a universe in which really the matter, the galaxies and the gas and the dust and the stars and all these things that we think of as the universe, that that is actually not most of the universe. That's sort of like, that's the kind of like the soap scum on top of the universe. The real universe, the thing that's actually controlling the fate of the universe is this invisible and completely unknown energy uh, that we call dark energy, but we don't really know where it comes from. We don't really know how it works. We don't really know why it's there. There's no theory that explains it. Um, it's just this measurement indicates that it's there. That's how dark matter sort of came to started too, though. Yeah. So, so uh, I mean, the the annoying thing is that you know, dark dark matter and dark energy are they uh, the same thing? No. They, 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 right. They have these very similar names, and you know, they they, they actually seem to be very different things. I mean, there are some people who've tried to make connections between the two of them. Uh, they, they appear to be really entirely separate. I, I mean, dark matter... Almost opposite. 
Almost, yeah. In many ways, you know, dark matter is pulling stuff together. Dark energy is is pushing stuff apart. Um, you know, the the, the real idea of, of dark matter is, you know, in, in, in a sense, it would be surprising if you didn't have something like that. Um, you know, you think about you think about you know, like the way we experience the world. We experience the world through, you know, through five senses. We overwhelmingly experience the world through vision, and vision. Is is you know is responsive to just a teeny tiny you know just this little sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, we see we see light. We can we we can build instruments that are, that pick up other types of radiation. But basically, we're really only looking at the world in one very specific kind of way. Well, the idea that every single thing in the universe should be visible that way that you know you should that you know just looking at it in that one way you should be able to see everything. You know, there's no reason why that should be true. And so dark matter yeah, seems to be this whole other part of the universe that just, you know, it doesn't show up. You know, the light doesn't interact with it. Gamma rays don't interact with it. Radio waves don't interact with it. You know, the stuff that we normally use to study the universe uh, just passes right through it. And so it's not really dark matter. It's sort of transparent matter. It's just stuff that, that you know, it doesn't respond to us. It doesn't care that we're here. Um and so, if you know that presents a really tough challenge, you know, if the the only way you know it's there is that you feel it's gravity. Well, how do you know? Like, how do you know if you're not completely fooling yourself, or how do you know what kind of a thing it is if you, if if it defeats all of the ways that you normally study the world around you? Uh, so that's what's kind of cool and very and also very frustrating about dark matter. Yeah, it's kind of frustrating because it's almost like you you came up with that dark matter and now you've got to come up with something to sort of counter it almost, you know what I mean? But but dark dark matter is I mean that's just that's fact now, right? That's proven. No, it's not proven. It's, oh. it's, well, a, it's still a theory, but there's no. It's an indirect. It checks proven, out, isn't it? Because that's the because it's the one thing you can add and take away and fuck everything up, right? That's my understanding of it. Right. So. Um, so dark matter it, it's is it, in this kind of yeah it's in it's in this funny limbo. Uh, there are many many different lines of evidence that it exists. Um, that, you know you you can you could test it in different ways, and all these different tests that you do point you to the fact that there is dark matter and that there's a lot of it. There's like about five times as much dark matter as there is visible matter. Mm-hmm. So again, you know our place in the universe, we're like. You know, I said we were like the soap scum before. I think we're the scum on the scum. We're <laughs> we're like the, the we're brown the, stuff on the foam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're the we're the we're the, the you know the the small minority of matter, and matter is the small minority dominated by all this energy. So, you know, our our, our place in the universe is really, in some ways, very peripheral. It just happens to be that it seems like, at least from our perspective. Uh, atoms, you know, the things that we're made of, um, do interesting and complicated things. You know, they make, they make stars, they make planets and they can, they can make chemistry and they can make people. And as near as we can tell, these other things can't, but honestly, we don't even know that there could be dark matter planets. There could be, you know, there could be dark matter people. Uh, you know, there, there's a, I mean, I think that that, that's, that's, it's kind of pushing at the limit of what is possible but it's not ruled out. Is that is it another word for, you know, what we were talking about 100, 100, 
25 years ago about ether and then maybe it's just another word for like the field that connects us all like the sort of like a Planck scale vibration I mean is that the same thing as dark matter too like is it also going to be what's missing in our environment that we can't visibly see that sort of connects us all together well the, the uh, I mean the ether is an interesting case because the, I mean the, the 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 ether was sort of um the ether was was kind of a hypothetical thing that really it it, it didn't come out of evidence so much as from a, a, sort of a lack of a better idea yeah uh, you know, p- people people knew that okay space is empty somehow radiation passes through it they couldn't wrap their heads around how that could be and so so ether was sort of this this I think this thing that was invoked to fill in a kind of a conceptual gap. Right. Um, dark matter is kind of different in that there actually is positive evidence that the stuff is really there, but what it is and you know sort of what form it takes um, is really remarkably little information. Yeah. And and there's still a, a, a small but very very uh, intense and dogged group of scientists who think that. Maybe it's the laws of gravity that are the problem. That if you can, if you if you tinker with the laws of gravity, that maybe you don't need dark matter at all. Uh, I would say probably ninety ninety five percent of the of the scientists out there think that they're nuts. Uh, but the but the ones who believe it are you know are are quite serious about it, and they're and they're and they're making a you know like a real a real attempt to understand it. And the fact is, since right now none of these models. Entirely makes sense, and you know, and all of these experiments designed to find dark matter have all come up empty. It's not like, you know, you we're not at a point where you can reject any idea out of hand. Mm. So, do they think it's some more like an electromagnetism force or something like that, or like have you ever heard of the electric universe kind of theories? Those sort of a little more out there <clears throat> theories about, um, you know, right. it being all like yeah, being huge. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, th- those look. I mean, th- those are fun. I-, I I love a lot of the fringe theories. Uh, you know, I I'm 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 fascinated by them. Uh, first of all, because they always they expand the range of what you're thinking about, and they force you to go back and really test your ideas. Of you know, I look at things. I think, okay, I'm sure that's wrong, but how do I know it's wrong? Like, yeah. why am I so sure that I that I know what I think I know? You know, it really it really forces you to go back. And question your assumptions. I mean, the the electric universe, uh, you know, the, the versions I've seen where they're trying to explain, you know, the shapes of spiral galaxies, and in the most baroque versions, they're saying like they're, ne- they're the Big Bang never happened. That you can explain everything just with electromagnetism, and you know, the, those things just don't work. I mean, they're they're cool ideas, uh, but when you really pick them apart, they they requ- they require sort of so many. Kind of contradictory or 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 incredibly coincidental types of things uh, to, to you know to, to sort of make the different pieces fit together. They don't really hang together as theories. Um, I mean that said, look, you know, electromagnetism, you know, does play a big part in shaping the universe. I mean, you can you know you can see these electromagnetic fields in in galaxy clusters you know, within galaxies. Um, there are these amazing images from the. Uh, from the Kobe satellite, this was uh, and and the and the Planck satellite. These were uh, a, an American and European missions that sort of looked at the afterglow of the Big Bang. But along the way, they also kind of mapped the structure of our galaxy. And you can see, you know, our galaxy looks like you know that experiment you do as a kid where you take a, a bar magnet and iron filings. You can sort of see the 
you know, shake them and it makes it lines up with the magnetic field. Yeah. Um, that's where, you know, you look at these pictures and that's what our galaxy looks like. You see all these crazy snaking lines. And so, you know, there's, there is a whole lot of structure there and those things are, you know, they're hard to model and they're very complicated and they're definitely affecting the, you know, the evolution of, of the galaxy and the evolution of the universe uh, in ways that are often very hard to model. But when you, when you try to scale them up to, you know, all the way to the, you know, the electric universe level, uh, that stuff tends to fall apart. So how, uh, how, did the, how did the recent discovery of gravitational waves affect that 5% of scientists that believe there's a problem with gravity? Uh, so it's an interesting question. The, the, uh, so the gravitational waves, um, this, this particular discovery actually doesn't really tell you what you want to know one way or the other. You can't take it as, as confirmation. You can't take it as refutation. Um, it, 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 it sort of tells you what gravity does at, at, at one particular scale, the scale of like if, you, oh. if, you're, if you're just bashing together two black holes, um, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, hey, I don't, I don't mean to knock that. It's very impressive that they can measure two black holes. <laughs> um, and if you, uh, I, 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 I can't tell you anything official, but if you wait, uh, let's say Monday, if you wait two more days, you're going to hear a whole bunch more about gravitational waves. There's going to be a big announcement on Wednesday. Ooh, uh, teaser alert. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, what's going to happen is already these, uh, these gravitational wave experiments uh, have seen multiple events. They, you know, there's only the one that's been announced, uh, but they're seeing like one or two events a month. Oh, wow. uh, and when they, when they improve the sensitivity, it's going to get more than that. And what you need is you need to start collecting statistics when you get, you know, dozens of them or hundreds of them. And these things start to, you know, when it goes from being like the one the weird one exciting yeah. that you've seen to just being like, you know, yeah, you're, right. It's like, it's like clicks on your Geiger counter or, you know, it's, when it starts to become a routine thing, then you can start to collect the information where you can distinguish between these different models of gravity. Uh, right now we're just, you know, you have one data point uh, and it's like, you know, with almost anything else in your life, um, you know, it's like one data point, you know, one meal at a restaurant. But you won't stop one, talking one, about one, it. One date with, a, with, with somebody <laughs> you're not sure about. You know, one data point is, a, is not much to go on. So, Griv, is, um, if, are you looking at the gravity waves in real time? Or are you looking at the gravity waves, say, 50 million years ago? Like, is gravity... Is the detection of these waves governed by the same speed of light? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Uh, as near as we can tell, anything that that moves energy or anything that really moves information in the universe um, cannot go faster than the speed of light. So a gravitational wave is kind of rippling through the universe uh, at the speed of light. So like so that that gravitational wave detection uh, that, that you all heard about from, uh, from a couple of months ago, uh, that started heading our way 1.3 billion years ago. So when, that, when those two black holes smashed into each other and those, that, and those waves started on their way toward Earth, uh, this was not only before dinosaurs, this was before any life on land. This was when the, the most complicated life on Earth was basically, you know, was amoeba. 
Yeah, essentially. It, it, it was, it, it was, you know, it, it was when the Earth started to have an oxygen atmosphere and you had the first uh, sort of complex single-celled life. That's when, that's when those gravitational waves started. And then, you know, and then a month ago they got here. So I guess that's what's so interesting about quantum computing and things like that, because if we can start to use entanglement to bypass the speed of light, like, is that how, well, like, well, I wonder, can gravity work like that? Could it, can you apply sort of quantum mechanics to it, or are we certain that it travels as a wave now? Well, so, uh, look, so entanglement is a really interesting question, because, so, you know, th- there there is this, there is this very interesting property of entanglement is that it, you know, it produces this instantaneous effect, uh, even as, you know, like, like halfway across the universe, you know, you have a, you know, you have a, you know, a particle of light here and a particle of light, particle of light there halfway across the universe. And you know, what you do to one seems to affect the measurement of what you do to the other. But here's, there's a huge catch with it, which the, which the people who get excited about this kind of, you know, this instantaneous uh, information thing. Don't tell you about the huge catch, which is to confirm that it works. You need to talk to the person at the other end. Oh. Uh, uh, so, like, they can't know what signal you're sending until essentially you you send them the the code book to tell them what the code was. And the code book, you can't send the code book faster than the speed of light. <laughs> so, um, it, it's a uh, so if quantum entanglement. Uh, lets you do certain things incredibly well, including like if you build a quantum computer, quantum entanglement lets you read the information out of the computer without touching it, for instance. Um, but what it, it but it doesn't actually let you send messages faster than the speed of light because pretty much no matter what you do, the universe will screw <laughs> with you. The universe is not, will not let you find stuff out faster than the speed of light. And again, with, with the big caveat, based on the physics we know right now. Uh, there, there's no known physics that lets you do that, but it, is there a loophole? You know, there's always the a loophole. There, there, there could be because look, this—I mean, this whole idea about you know the cosmic speed limit of light and how gravitational waves move and all these things—all these physical ideas are you know less than a century old. I mean, this is this is a you know this is a relatively modern. This is not a complete theory. Uh, it's a good theory. Um, it's better than what I could have come up with. Uh, Einstein was a pretty smart guy, but it's but it's not a complete theory. Yeah, I think that's that's the kind of thing that seems to be forgotten nowadays. Sometimes, eh? Is it seems like people forget that science is a process, not a religion. Yeah, and look, I think uh, you know there there are people who are you know, who get very enthusiastic about what you can do with the, like the pure rational worldview. And I'm a big believer in that, you know, it, it, you know, you know, believing in the power of science saves you from a lot of superstition and a lot of magical thinking, a lot of, you know, self-destructive behaviors. But at the same time, it, it is important to, to keep those things in perspective of what, what science is, you know, it's a human process. It's not, you know, it's not a process that gets to absolute truths. And, you know, if you take a, if you have a historical perspective, you realize that you know we're in the you know we're in the middle of this very very long slog uh, you know that's been going on for for thousands of years trying to piece these bits of information together and because everything is moving so fast right now because we're doing it so well right now you know there's a there's a 
there's a natural tendency to think, okay, this is it. Yeah, we, we, we've, got, we've got it all. We're, we're at the end point. But we have no reason to think we're at the end point. Uh, yeah, we, we, we have no idea where we are in the, in the total process of trying to make sense of these things. Well, it almost seems like, if anything, more like you were, we're just a couple decades away from proving what we think today is wrong. Yeah. Well, so we yeah, think I mean, today is right being yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah the yeah the, uh, yeah, the, the old uh, Woody Allen movie uh, Sleeper, where he you know he wakes up a hundred years in the future, and they've discovered that you know that the healthiest things to eat are like red meat, deep fat, and you know smoking cigars, <laughs> uh, because they, you know their their science has just proven all of the science of today. So, sort of, you know, yeah, that's that's funny. Staying on that same vein, I wanted to ask you about that that process, the being a journalist and being, you know, in the media a little bit and, and having to sift through peer review studies. I mean, we've been hearing a little bit lately about that process being in jeopardy in some sense because of the, the monetary influence and, and, uh, how, to, and there's so many headlines. I mean, we, we see it every day, right now. Fat is good. Fat is bad. Uh, this is good. That's bad. And all these supposed studies coming out. How do you, how do you see that process working or needing to improve? Well, so, I mean, the, you know, this is, I have a. Uh, I feel like I'm in a very kind of privileged position because, you know, a lot of what I write about is, you know, sort of kind of you know, astronomy, physics, you know, sort of sort of kind it of seems kind untouched. Of, yeah, I was mentioning that. Art theoretical work. Well, it's it's look, and but but that's but the interesting part is it's not like it's untouched. It's not like that stuff is completely pure because people have you know their they have their personal obsessions and they have their pet theories and they have you know and you know there are still you know funding agencies that support certain types of research over other types of research. Um, so, you know, you have all the same, you have the same kinds of issues that play out, but they play out in sort of a, in sort of a much cleaner and simpler way. And so it's actually much easier to see what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, a you know, th- there, there was um, this group of researchers working on a telescope at the South Pole called, called BICEP2. And they, uh, and they thought they had picked up, um, they, they thought basically they, that they had detected um, gra- kind of like the, the the shaking of the universe from the time of the Big Bang. Uh, it would have been a really really amazing uh, discovery. Mm-hmm. And they jumped the gun and they they felt so good about it that they held a press conference before they published it uh, before it was peer reviewed. And as soon as they announced it, a bunch of other people looked at it and said, you know, there there are a lot. There, you know, this is a very difficult measurement, and there are a lot of potential sources of error here that you haven't considered, and we we don't really believe it. And they ended up basically having to retract this, yeah, you know, this this big announcement. Well, you know, in principle, you know, it, it, this was a you know a sort of a, a big slow motion version of what happens daily. It's certainly weekly, and pretty much daily in all these different you know health studies and, uh, and all these other things. But because in the you know when you're in the physical sciences, you have a relatively small number of studies with a relatively you know with a lot of people on them with a lot of public funding, uh, you know without uh, you know without commercial interests interfering, you get to see the process in a very naked way, and you get to see okay this is what happens when people get overconfident. This is what people happens when people get arrogant. This is what happens when you have you know competing teams who decide to fight with each other. Um, you know, this is what happens when they when they get absolutely you know this salivating at the prospect of a big prize or the next uh, you know or the next round of, of research funding. Um, 
And so it was very interesting to watch that process because you could see all that stuff happening. It's basically you know, like, like the whole skeleton of, of science was, was exposed there. As, as soon as you get to, you know, you know, you know, CRISPR gene manipulations and, uh, you know, and, and pharmaceutical research and all these things where there, there are so many complicated human factors and so much uh, commercial money going on. Yeah. All the same stuff is happening, but it's, it's thick and it's blurry and it's really hard to 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 watch it. Um, and you know that's why you know, I mean there there are like there's there's a website called Retraction Watch, uh, which is it, it's great. I, you know I'm I'm glad they do it. It's you know it, it's you know it's basically devoted entirely to helping people who don't have the the time and the wherewithal to go through all this stuff to understand all the things that are getting debunked every day. And, and, you know, it's a full-time job for them because there's so much of it. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's back to this idea. Science is a human process. Science is not, you know, it's not a process toward absolute truth. It's not, you know, it's not done by robots. It's not done without, you know, it, it's not done without emotion. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's done by people who, who want awards or who want grants or who want, you know, the possibility of going to get a, you know, a lucrative job in private industry. So, Look, I mean, you, you know, the, these are, um, they're, yeah, yeah, I mean, they're difficult issues without, without simple answers. Um, you know, I think the remarkable thing is that peer review works as well as it does. Uh, you know, I think on the, you know, the, the, I think the, the problem is not that the, that the process is fundamentally flawed. It's that uh, a lot of the time it's not really allowed to work. Uh, there are all these other confounding factors. Right. And so... And so, yeah, you know, I feel like you know a lot of what we're going through right now is actually, you know, it, it's it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like what happened after the economic meltdown, where people are like, okay, how do you regulate, you know, these banks and these and these big financial institutions? Um, we accept this. Yeah, you know, this is a capitalist society. We accept that people are you know want to make a profit, but we have to figure out how to control this. And I feel like you know that's there, there's a straight analogy from that to what's going on in science. That you know you have this you have this basic structure of peer review which everybody accepts and doesn't really want to doesn't want to mess up but at the same time you have all these sloppy motives that are impressed on top of it you have to figure out how do you how do you control that yeah that's well said i've got another i've got another interesting question sort of sort of along the same vein and I, and i always you know speaking to people like yourself it's always a difficult question for me to ask but um you know, what would it take for you guys, like you being a scientific journalist, to take uh, the UFO phenomena seriously? Like, what if you and, and a bunch of your journalist friends saw, like, a Walmart-sized craft flying through the sky, and it disappeared or took off at extraordinary <laughs> speed? Like, like, what would it take if, if for, for that whole community to oh, take course, it look, serious? Like, look, we, we've, I mean, we've all thought about it, because this, and again, I think, you know, the, the yeah, the, the the true believers have a have a hard time accepting this, but like, you know, for for those of us on like the you know sort of like the hard science journalism side, nothing would be more exciting than having this stuff proved to be real. Like, if there really are UFOs visiting us, and there really are aliens coming to our planet, and you know, hell, you know, if they if they're if there's if they're if there's some reason why they like visiting, you know, pickup trucks in the middle of the night and you know, anally probing people, and it turns out that it's all true. That would be the most amazing story ever. You know, you'd want to you'd want to know like 
what is that about? Why are they here? What is their purpose? Uh, what is their biology? What, you, uh, you know, why have we not been able to detect them before? I mean, there there's so many great questions. Uh, I would I would love to believe, but let, but let's uh, not tie those two together. But, so so <laughs> think of UFO as in the traditional definition, like unidentified. So it's not I'm not talking extraterrestrial here. I'm just talking something unidentified. Right. Yeah. And, well, look. I mean, if you, know, if you just see something that you can't explain what it is, uh, you know, there there is a whole community that is really, you know, that's very actively engaged in these things. There are people who, you know, there there's a there's a meteor watching community. There are there's there's a weather watching community. There are variable mm. star watching communities. I mean, there there are, there are a lot of different uh, kind of amateur obsessives who are engaged in different types of detective work. So, you know, depending on what I saw, you know, I, I would I would go to the the prepper kind of kind of sleuth. You know, mm-hmm. if what I saw was some if I just saw a, a mysterious light, there's a whole series of people I could talk to yeah, yeah. to see, you know, like did you catch that? You know, and these days it, you know, in the in the era of ubiquitous cameras, uh, you know, there's either a satellite looking down or there's a, you know, there's a ground camera looking up uh, a lot of places on the planet. Um uh, you know, if I actually saw, you know, if I saw, you know, an alien spacecraft land in front of me, that would be like, uh, you know, first I would check to see, make sure that I had not gone insane. And, <laughs> you know, you know, I'd, I'd want to check my mental health. But yeah, look, look if anything that, that convinced me it was real, that would be the most, I mean, that would be the most amazing moment of my life. Of course it would be. So I wanted to get back to ex- exoplanets as well, because I've got this, this nagging f- thing in my head so so we've discovered now almost probably probably close to six thousand supposed planets out there which is pretty amazing and it's just skyrocketing and i you've written about all the different technologies they use it's pretty fascinating stuff but what what would um so that's there's a couple things going on right and you, you talked about the moons in our solar system and how we may actually find you know um microbiotic life on those and then that's going to just explode the uh, you know the the chances of finding uh, you know not only all these other planets but other moons around those planets like it could really you know increase the chances of finding something out there. So along that search, like if if we were to search back, let's say we we're going to use technology like five or ten years from now, and if we were going to look back at the Earth, how far would we be able to go to tell that we had some sort of intelligent life on earth? Do you know what I mean? Like if we were right. could, like, could we see earth from alpha Centauri and say something's going on on that planet? So, um, if let's, let's see, if you had a planet around, so, uh, alpha Centauri a, that's the one that's, a, that's basically a twin of our sun. If you had an earth going around it. Yeah. Um, with, uh, with current technology, um, if it passed directly in front of the star, you would be able to detect that there's a planet there, but you'd not be able to See say anything it. about you, yeah. Yeah, you would, right. With, uh, with the, with our current technology, that would be, so there'd be, there'd be a couple problems. First of all, because earth, you know, earth goes around once a year. So if you have an earth like planet around Alpha Centauri, um, basically, you you get one event a year. No, oh, right? Yeah. So so once a year, you get an yeah you, know, you get an eclipse that lasts. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think about an hour. Um, so like once a year, you have an hour to look at it, and of that hour, 
it's really only when it, the moment when it's crossing, you know, across the, the, the limb of the star, where it's going from dark to light and light to dark. Um, that's really the only, those are the moment where you, that's the moment where you have a, a reasonably clear view. So you're getting like, you know, a few minutes a year of observing time and you would need a really, really big telescope to do it. Yeah, right, so, right. so, th- so this is, you know, I mean, so and first of all, and this is part of the reason why you would want to build an interstellar space probe instead of just exactly. build a really yeah, nice yeah. big telescope because yeah. there are, I mean, there are reasons why you want to physically go there. But the other thing is, um, so, you know, a lot of what the astronomers are thinking about right now is, okay, what is the, you know, what combination of star and planet and different types of habitable planet, what is the, what is the easiest thing to start with? You know, like what, what would be the type of planet that you're most likely to be able to study in a meaningful way? So <clears throat> if, you, uh, if you're looking at a, a small, cool star, um, where you know, any planet that would have, you know, an Earth-like planet would have to be very close to it. So you have a star that's smaller and dimmer than the sun. Uh, the planet relative to the size of the star is a lot larger and easier to see. Mm-hmm. <coughs> because it would have to orbit close to its star, its orbit is a lot faster. And so it's passing in front of its star maybe, you know, once a, once a month rather than once a year. And then, you know, if everything works out exactly right. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope, um, which is going to be launching in about, uh, in just a little over two years. Uh, if, you know, if everything sort of tips out just right, you could, you could probably study the atmosphere of a planet like that and <laughs> figure out that, that oh, that, that, planet, that planet has water, and that planet seems to have you know, a lot of oxygen in its air. I mean, you, you could you could you could do that. That's that's what you could do with the near term technology. Um, and you're like, okay, so you know, then you read a headline that says, you know, scientists find, you know, Earth like planet that seems to have water and maybe oxygen. And you're like, okay, that's not what I wanted to know. I want to know: is there life there? Yeah. I, you yeah. Know, are there oceans? Are there continents? Are there people? Or is there is there archaeoastronomy happening? Like, are we gonna? Is our first sign of life gonna be uh, something you could see that's intelligently made on a planet? Like, like if it was like the Great Wall of China times ten on our Earth, like, what would is that gonna be the way we discover it? Right. So, uh, so it turns out, you know, the things you really want to do. Uh, you need a really, really big space telescope to do it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so you need something well beyond the James Webb Space Telescope. There, there's a there's a next generation telescope, uh, sort of at the planning stage, called the High Definition Space Telescope, and that would begin to tell you, uh, it, you know, it, it would begin to show you. You'd be able to do things like watch the the way that the light of the planet changes from day to night, and that would begin to tell you: Does it have does it have clouds? Does it have oceans and continents? Um, it'd be able to start to tell you things about the composition of the atmosphere. Hmm. But then at the next level, like you know, you really want to know: Is there life? And then you really want to know the thing after that, which is you want to know: Is there intelligent life? Yeah, yeah. And the answer, you know, is there intelligent life? Probably the the first way you're going to find out is by picking up a signal. Yeah, a radio signal right, or a right. laser signal or something like that, um, because 
the the level of observation you would need to figure out there's a, you know the, the you know if you're imagine this from the other end you know somebody on Alpha Centauri looking back at Earth and trying to figure out what's going on here. Uh, could, um, they, yeah. could they see Vegas at night, kind of thing? <laughs> right, so, so, like c- city lights at night um, are 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 possible, but they're very very tough. Um, you would you definitely you'd get oxygen in the atmosphere. You'd probably get ozone and methane. And you'd look at those things. You'd think that's a really that's that's a very weird planet unless there's something living there. Uh, um, but you know, to to figure out that there are there's a civilization here. You can look for more exotic things. You can look for heavy metals or chlorofluorocarbons or things that are complete, you know, that are exclusively synthetic chemicals, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and that could tell you that would give you strong circumstantial evidence that there's intelligent civilization here. But again, it, you imagine you know you're reading the headline, and the headline is we found this planet. And it's got a really unusual atmosphere and it has these you know these artificial looking molecules in it, and that's the end of the story. And again, you're still you're on the edge of your seat. You want the answer, and that's not the answer you want. Um, you know, you really want the answer is somebody there, and that is just an incredibly difficult question to do from a distance, unless, like I said, unless you actually get a broadcast of one kind or another of somebody saying, "Hey, we're here," or you know, if they visit you in a spaceship. And how how directed does that have to be? Because you hear a lot of people say, oh, well, if there was anyone out there, we'd have heard the radio signals like by now or something like that. Like if you're on Alpha Centauri, have you, and you've got a device, have you picked up any signals from Earth in our 100 plus years of broadcasting? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, uh, would you, you probably, probably not. It probably hasn't reached there yet. Well, four well, years. No, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the signal, the signal would have gotten there. Um, They're watching Survivor. Uh, it's old one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, 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 yeah, they're, they're four seasons behind on all of our, all of our TV. <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah, that that kind of sucks for them. They don't, they, don't, they don't even know about Game of Thrones yet. <laughs> yeah, they don't even. They won't even get it. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Actually, they probably would have stopped getting shit when we switched to digital. Or would that still be the same? I guess it well, doesn't matter. Well, exactly. So, so yeah. So they're right. So they so, well. So there are a bunch of problems. Yeah. When like when you have satellite satellite TV that's only beamed down instead of you know, instead of blasted everywhere by, from broadcast towers. Um, so basically, Earth has actually been getting harder and harder to observe over the past twenty years. Wow. Um, so small we, window there. Yeah, we kind of we kind of peaked, right? So, so that's on the other hand. If you imagine that there are aliens that want to be known, um, you know, we could quite easily set up a program to like, like, you know, to point lasers at you know, let's say like a hundred nearby stars that seem you know that are sort of like you know that seem like likely places where there could be life. Uh, you could very easily beam continuous laser messages to all those places. And, you know, you know, so maybe aliens do that. Now, there are all kinds of, you know, you've probably heard of this thing called the, the Fermi paradox. I was, I was just going to ask you about that and if it's changed over the last two years. Well, look, so the, the uh, I mean, the big question with the Fermi paradox is, you know, that, you know, if, if life is, a, is an inevitable process, as a lot of people think it is, and if it inevitably goes toward intelligence, as some people think it does, 
then you know the universe should be full of intelligent civilizations. So where are they? Well, you know, one possibility is just that you know that, that most life does not evolve toward intelligence. I mean, it could be that their galaxy is just full of planets that are, have their equivalents of you know horses and dinosaurs and raccoons and and you know and and trees and and moss and all this stuff. It it may be that just the you know intelligent technological civilizations are not in any way an inevitable outcome of evolution, or yeah, maybe just yeah. technological. Yeah, right. Yeah, I it, was. It, Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was like, or it could also be that that you know, yeah, that this this thing, this idea that we have in our heads that that you know we want to communicate and we want other people to communicate with us. Maybe that's not a universal thing. Maybe there are all kinds of intelligent civilizations out there. And the idea of wanting to talk to another civilization is not even part of what they do. I mean, maybe, maybe that's not a, maybe that's not a universal desire. Yeah. That could be a small percentage of, of intelligence uh, out there actually doing that. Yeah. That's a good point. We'll go back 200 years and nobody even really, you know, I guess some people did, but not a lot of cultures were, could, would have been content to just keep on going the way things were going. I'm sure. <clears throat> right. So uh, what I meant to say was um, the Drake equation, has that changed because of the uh, the influx of now, you know, you hear these quotes like, oh, there's a billion planets per solar system and all this kind of stuff. Or, or per, <laughs> no, per, uh, per, gal <laughs> per, per galaxy, I guess, is that that's what they were saying? Or I mean, uh, is that changed the Drake equation a lot? Just the amount of, of um, fines that we've had? Well, I think, you know, a, the, the single biggest thing that it's done is it cha it's changed the level of certainty in the Drake equation. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I, one of the things I read obsessively when I got interested in astronomy is I read the, the early books of Carl Sagan. And, you know, and Carl Sagan kind of went on the assumption that, you know, pretty much every star has planets and every planetary system is going to be kind of like ours. And so... You know, you know his billions and billions. Um, you know that 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 kind of kind of mantra of, of these very large numbers. Um, I mean, that's a very like straight extrapolation. That well, there are something like two hundred billion stars in our galaxy. If you assume that you know half of those have planets, and you know a typical solar system has something like ten planets, uh, well. There are more planets in our galaxy than there are stars, and even if you're only considering roughly Earth-like planets, it's still in the billions and billions. That's where he got back to his billions and yeah, billions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, but he, you know, he, so he was saying that sort of as an article of faith. Um, now we actually have these really good statistics from things like the Kepler Space Telescope, um, and you know, you crunch them and you work all work through all the numbers and you look at the actual statistics of how many stars we know of that have planets and what kinds of planets they have and and what you know how much we can extrapolate from that to the types of stars we haven't been able to study yet and you know now you're back to billions and billions only that it's not a it's not an article of faith now you actually have it based on real data and real statistics so you know so you know the kinds of numbers that Carl Sagan was plugging into the Drake equation 40 years ago and the kinds of numbers we're plugging in now are not really all that different. The only the big difference is that he was doing it with guesswork, and we're doing it with you know with with actual measured 
data oh. with, with actual. Oh, I thought I thought the numbers were I thought the numbers were way off too. Actually, oh. Uh, but you know, so in the Drake equation, you know, the, I mean, the biggest uncertainty really is, uh, you know, how often, uh, you know, a habitable planet actually develops life, how often life develops a technological civilization, and then the the the, the last big question, which is how long a tech, technological civilization lasts. Like, you know, are we going to be? Are we still going to be broadcasting and and doing things? You know. A million years from now, you know, a thousand years from now, a hundred years from now, um, you know. I mean, you like to think that the answer is yes, but again, you know, we don't know. Um, I had a great conversation with this guy named uh, Alex Vulchin. He's an astronomer at, at at Penn State, and he actually discovered the very first planets around another star. Uh, he, he's kind of a he's sort of an unsung hero because nobody knows his name. But he, but in 1992, he found uh, planets around a pulsar. Uh, it's like a, it's like a, a dead, uh, rapidly spinning stellar, stellar cinder. So these are not, by any stretch of the imagination, habitable planets. But they were the very first planets. And he basically specializes in finding uh, dead planets, planets in places where there couldn't possibly be life. Uh, so, and he's a nice, gloomy Eastern European Polish guy. Um, and so I was talking to him about all these about these planets and sort of and you know so you know and and what he thinks about this kind of like the state of humanity and we were talking about the Drake equation and so I said well you know you know you're looking at all these planets that are dead planets but what do you think about a living planet like you know what do you think is the future of the Earth yeah do you think that you know that humans will still be here in a thousand years he says a thousand years oh no I'm like really you don't think there will be any humans in a thousand years he says no I don't think so. Wow. I said, okay, well, okay, what about 100 years? Will humans be here in 100 years? He said, in 100 years? Oh, no, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> like, okay, you've got the pessimism down, Pat. <laughs> I think, so. uh, yeah, it's tough to say, but I mean, you've still got that time limit, I suppose, before. Well, I guess you could, you've got nuclear and stuff like that, but even that it seems like you've only got, I don't know, what a space of maybe... A few hundred thousand years to figure it out before you'd run out of whatever you're trying to do, whatever yeah, you need uh, for energy. Maybe some things sooner than others. Yeah, I mean, I think. Look, you know, if you believe, as, as I do, that that uh, you know that you know, the technological civilization civilizations sort of naturally keep developing new technologies. Uh, I don't think we're you know we're not going to run out of energy. Oh, we'll uh, just find a new way, right? Right, I mean that's and that's where you get into things like oh, you know, you 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 start uh, you know you start moving to other planets, or then you start engineering whole planets to harvest more energy for your star, or you learn how to make a you know make your own star. I mean, they're they're they're, they're you know the universe is full of energy. Um, <clears throat> you know, if if life really can continue as an organizing principle, you know, if we don't destroy ourselves, or we don't, you know, if there isn't some kind of like built in end game in what we what we're doing in principle uh you know there's a lot of energy out there to organize and you can keep doing that for i mean the, the universe is going to have you know stars shining pumping out energy for something you know for about on the order of about 10 to 20 trillion years <laughs> so, so, so it, to, just for comparison, yeah, so our, our, so the universe is about 
you know, it's 13.7 billion years old right now. Um, the, the longest lived stars will, will keep burning for something like about 15 trillion years. So we are um, about one one thousandth the way through the age of the, of the bright universe. And then uh, so, new stars would constantly be naturally developing as well, no? Like does Jupiter becomes a star eventually, doesn't it? Well, so, I mean, what, what happens is eventually you, you just, you run out of raw material for stars. I mean, eventually, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. yeah ev- eventually, you know, eventually like everything that can form a star has formed a star and then they all start to run down. And so that's, that's where, you know, unless, unless something new comes along in about 20 trillion years, <laughs> the, universe, the universe starts to go dark. But even, even if you, you know, even if you accept, like, even if you imagine that we really know everything and that really is all there is and that that's when it runs down, uh, then, you know, we, you know, where we, where we're living right now in the history of the universe is, you know, we are in the, you know, the first one-tenth of one percent of the history of the, of the total history of the bright universe. So, you know, everything that's happened up till now is, you know, is a, is a, is a speck in the, in the, in the stretch of time that we're talking about. So, you know, maybe it's just, maybe intelligent life takes a really long time to get going. Maybe we're the first, maybe, you know, maybe it takes, you know, maybe you need another, you know, like 10 billion or hundred billion years before the galaxy is, is full of people. But, you know, if you look at things from a, from a cosmic time scale instead of from a human time scale, sure, why not? Maybe, maybe it's you know, maybe life is just slow going. Have you, uh, have you, you say you like uh, like the fringe stuff? Have you looked into any of uh, Neil Adams' work or any of this growing uh, growing planet stuff? Uh, I'm actually not familiar with that. No. Oh man, you got to. Uh, I'd be interesting to hear your take on it. If you just throw in the YouTube later on tonight or one day this week, just put in like Neil Adams, Europa is a good one. But if you just like go to the Neil Adams, like he's got a YouTube page full of videos of his little collection of evidence that the earth and not just earth, Mars, he basically says that all the planets are growing through a process called pear production. It's it's really it. it's really fascinating it. stuff. It fucking blew my mind. Okay, because it because it actually shows because uh, I'm pretty. I like to consider myself fairly scientific. Like obviously not on on the level you are, but I, I like to keep up to speed, and that's kind of where I kind of have my home base. I kind of take that persona in the show, or Graham's more on the other side of the fence a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I was actually I was captivated. And uh, uh, for I'm still captivated by it. Oh well, I, I love a good mind bender, so I'll look forward to that after the show. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of energy, where would you? I mean, you must have to keep up on a lot of the new technologies and stuff like that. Where would you throw some money and effort if you had, you know, if you had the ability to do that with some sort of technology that's going to help the planet, you know, or help us? Right. Uh, well, look, I, I think. Uh, I think you know. I near term, if it were up to me, that um, we would be doing a, a a push onto just kind of next next generation nuclear power. Just you know, I mean, just conventional nuclear, but uh, done in a you know in a sort of a much more yeah, yeah. sophisticated way. Yeah. Uh, politically, I I I don't know if that can happen, uh, but I think you know that I think that's a great 
bridge technology. And we're uh, there, right? I mean, I think that's the thing is nuclear technology is already there in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, you get you could just you could just flip the flip the switch and make that happen. I mean, that's that's the, the you know it, it's like going back to the moon. You know, the impediment to that the impediment is is political. It's yeah, not yeah. it's not Tec- technological. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, you know uh, artificial photosynthesis is a really interesting one uh, because it, it's a you know, it, you know it's a it's a way of getting um, liquid fuels and you know and, and kind of kind of you know all kinds of different raw materials harvested from sunshine. Uh, but it, you know, sort of without, without all the, you know, all all the complicated sort of secondary effects of like you know, trying to do ethanol and things like that that really don't work very well. Uh, so I think that's an interesting one. I mean, further out, I am actually very optimistic about about nuclear fusion. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen the conventional ways that some people have been pursuing it. I think there, I mean, I think there's a reason it's been. It, you know, it's been it's been making very very limited progress for something like the past fifty years. Uh, but there, you know, there are some people. Yeah, you know, there's some unconventional approaches to nuclear fusion, and I suspect that one of those is going to be the thing that works, uh, because the you know the the, the uh, I mean the pro- the problem with a lot of alternate energy is that you know you have you know you're working with raw materials that are very cheap or even free. Um, you know, like wind, sun, or you know, in the case of fusion, you're, you're dealing with hydrogen basically from from seawater. Um, you know, the problem becomes the machinery that you need to to liberate the power. And you know, there, there's a there's a project right now called 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 ITER, the International uh, was it Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Uh, it's supposed to be a like a prototype. Nuclear fusion device. Uh, it's a it's a giant international project. Uh, the current price tag on it, I think, is twelve billion dollars oh. to build one reactor, which is not it's not actually expected to even be able to. I think it's supposed to be able to just break even or maybe you know, create a, a trickle of electricity. Um, and you could sort of look at it and like, okay, you know, so you know, your fu- okay, let's say your fuel is free, but your reactor costs twelve billion dollars. Uh, you know that's not you're it's not going to be you're never going to have you know practically make electricity that way. But somebody's going to somebody's going to figure out a very different way to do it. Uh, you know we know that it's we know that it's physically possible. We even know that it's you know look we've achieved it technologically. You know in, when we detonated hydrogen bombs, we you know, we we did effective fusion reactions. We have these you know they, we have these fusion experiments that can achieve reactions. Uh, they just can't do it efficiently. So. You know, it's all it's all there. Somebody's going to put those pieces together, and when they do, uh, you know, that is really going to be. I mean, that's going to be a truly revolutionary thing. If you could do affordable, compact nuclear fusion, uh, then you know the whole, you know, all of the assumptions right now about about the environment, about the world economy, could you know could flip upside down. Well, I suppose at one time people thought handheld fire was crazy too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I, hey, you know, wristwatches. You know, that was. That so was, that was, that I was, got. What you know. do you? I wonder if if you've noticed. Have you noticed a growing number of people that seem to think that the Earth is flat? <laughs> have you noticed how that camp is growing? Well, I, I I've been trying to figure this out. If it's if it's more <laughs> if it's more people if it's more people 
or if they're fighting each other on social media or, or, or and, both, and, yeah. okay and, and so you've much, noticed this <laughs> oh, I've, oh i've noticed it believe me i've noticed it uh and you know and and then you know, and how many of these people you know like how much of it is a put on or how much of it is them just kind of enjoying kind of like flipping a middle finger to the rest of the world it's 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 sort of hard to tell how much of it is just you know is aggressive and how much of it is is genuine belief yeah so I'm trying, have you come up with anything that works to get rid of them or to, to have them see the light or I, I've been sending a model rocket videos that people have gotten them up there where you can see the curvature, but now these people are up to something or they're on the payroll. <laughs> Is there like any simple experiment that any, any guy can go out in his backyard with a buddy and pull off? Well, I, look, my, uh, I, I've, I've tried that a little bit. My general feeling at this point, is that I mean, people who are there's is there's, that the there, Earth there, is flat? Yeah, there there are there are kind of like there are there are, there are sort of two populations. I mean, I think there are people who are genuinely kind of like curious and maybe a little naive or maybe a little titillated by it, and so they they're kind of they, they you know, there are some people who genuinely want to know. They hear about this, they want to know is there anything to it, uh, and those are the people who you can send them. You know, you can show them this uh, this this discover sa- this discover satellite that their spacecraft that takes uh, daily snapshots of the Earth from. You can see the you know the beautiful roundness of the Earth from uh, from a distance of about two million miles, uh, and you can show them, you know, uh, you know Apollo snapshots and Apollo videos, and you know I think you know actually use this as what they call you know like yeah a teachable moment, but but the people who are aggressive about it have absolutely no interest. In being dissuaded from their view, I mean, they they are they're in it to um, they're in it to to fight, or they're in it to feel superior, or they're in it to you know to enjoy the idea that there's a conspiracy. I mean, there there's there's a very strong will to believe, and the people who have the will to believe, I don't I don't even try to argue with them because the the the, the argument is what they want. I mean, they're not, they're not there to be, you know, they're not there to collect information and they're not ready to be persuaded. They kind of want the, you know, the adrenaline rush of the fight. And, you know, sometimes, look, every once in a while, I feel the adrenaline rush of the fight as well. And it's, you know, it's, it's fun to, you know, to, to poke at the hornet's nest, but (laughs) I've never, ever seen, you know, one of these people say, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Actually, yeah, your earth looks totally round. Uh, My bad. I've never, ever seen that happen. See, Darren, you just could have taken my advice before we called Corey. It's like, just disengage. Just drop it. I can't drop help it, it. Disengage. Stop. Stop. Like, stop I, the whole interaction. I can't yeah. help no, it. No, but to me, the most interesting thing is, is actually trying to understand psychologically where they're coming from. Like, why, why they love this idea so much. Because that, I think, is really interesting. I like the idea of being under somebody's thumb, I think. Well, yeah. Look, I mean, there's there's the, there's there's the fun of thinking that you have the secret knowledge and everybody else has been fooled. There's the you know there there's the the conspiracy mindset that you know that there's this there are these sort of powerful forces arrayed against you. And if you've ever felt powerless, this is why because it really is all you know because you know there are so many people so much bigger than you who are trying to keep you down. I mean, there, I you know I think there there are, there are a lot of different things, but but I but. You know, I, I am I'm fascinated by the mindset of, of sort of what is behind it. I really would like to to understand that more. And and in that sense, I would be I am kind of genuinely interested in 
you know, in watching some of these exchanges and sort of seeing how, you know, how the how the conspiracy people think, and and you know, I mean, the the, the moon hoax people as well, uh, and a number of these other, uh, you know, sort of you know, sort of you know, hoax obsessives. It's really it's very it's fascinating to me. Sort of what is you know what is it in this in this human mindset that you know the people who they love this idea of like. I, you know, my eyes are wide open. I see the things that nobody else sees. You, sh- you sheeple, you sheeple don't know what's going on. And it's, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a powerful psychology. And it's, it's a very, I mean, that to me is the interesting part of it. Yeah. It's a whole different level. Like I believe, I believe a lot of just crazy things and I look into a lot, but that's just a completely different level. You know, I think for me, it's cause it's not based on personal experience or something as much as it's based on, the the uh, the distrust of the establishment. Like, I mean, I have I have trust issues with the establishment too, but I'm not willing to say that every picture that I see of a round planet or moon is fake. Like, it just doesn't. You have trust just... issues with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, this. I mean, the, the, I mean, the flat Earth kind of like. I mean, even more than the Apollo hoax. You know, it's just the it's the total audacity of it that you know. It's like I don't I don't believe you know. If people say I don't believe I don't believe that satellites exist, it's like, but you can look up and see them. No, I don't believe those are satellites. Yeah. No, that's not satellite. That's a dot. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's like one guy was like, well, right. I was like, well, well, the easiest thing I was like, well, the easiest argument I have is everything I can see with my naked eye or with my telescope is round. So why would yeah. Earth be any different? He's like, well, I'll give you round, but I don't see spheres. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just—they're just other flat it, circles. It is. It's. It, it's. Yeah. There. There's a. We it, just it, lost some listeners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, what's, I, I, mean, I do. I do kind of admire the sheer audacity of that. You know. It's. It's a. Um, it's like who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? <laughs> Well, and a lot of it could be disinformation as well. It could be people. Uh, you know, like the the Russians pay thousands of people to to make comments in different, uh, to rile different, up the Americans up, against each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I look at, I, I think for a lot of people, it really is, you know, th- there is also just like a tremendous amount of fun in kind of like pissing off the establishment. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's a very easy way to pick a fight. And all you have to do is keep saying like, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And you can drive the other person into a rage. So it's like, <laughs> sure, why not? No, no, no. That's um well you see if you like uh, a brain teaser, you'll have to check out the back catalog. <laughs> What's that? You'll have to check out our back catalog of oh, shows. Yeah, There's yes. a lack of them there. So uh before we before we let you go, I, I wanted yeah, to it's... pick your brain on um what uh, what you think will be the most exciting sort of thing that we'll see in our lifetime? Assuming we're uh, all around 40. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, did you drink, smoke? Uh, did you do yeah. drugs? I, I, need, I need a health profile to figure out. How give long give, him, 20, give him 20 years. All I do is medicine. Give my him medicine. 20 years, yeah. <laughs> That's my medicine, you smell, officer. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, okay. Oh. Wow, that's a that's a big one. Um, all right, I'll, I'll I'll throw out a few things that I think are going to be pretty revolutionary. Um, uh, one is the stuff um, you probably heard about uh, about you know, CRISPR. It's a it's a, a very effective way to do genetic engineering. Yeah, and at the same time, uh, like the 
the the Craig Venture Institute, the uh, it's they're kind of like one of the hotbeds of genetic engineering. Uh, they're they're starting to work on creating synthetic cells, uh, cells where the, where the entire DNA of the cell is is programmed from the ground up. Um, so I think we're going to start seeing something that's that's far beyond genetically modified foods. You're going to start seeing uh, tailor made organisms, uh, organisms that are actually programmed. Uh, in like a, a DNA operating language, uh, treated as software. Uh, that that and that stuff. That's something you're you're going to see within probably ten or twenty years. And you're also there's going to be a huge ethical debate about about editing the human genome. Uh, and that's already I mean that's already starting, but that's on its way. Uh, so that's certainly going to be a big one. Uh, I think uh, I think there. There will probably be a uh, an international base on the moon, probably within ten or twenty years. Uh, it'll be the, the successor to the space station. I think is going to be a, an international moon base with the the Chinese, the Russians, and the Americans together, mm-hmm. which I think would be a, a really big thing both for science and for international collaboration. Yeah, uh, I think this. I think this breakthrough star shot. I think uh, you know. I think. I think you know. Uh, you know. I think a project to build. Uh, an interstellar probe and do it in our own lifetime. Uh, I think that has a realistic chance of happening, and I think that does have a a, a, a chance also of being something really just you know, a, a genuine breakthrough. And the final thing is, look, if somebody can figure out, um, a, you know, if, if somebody can can really crack the energy problem, uh, you know, it may very it may it may just turn out that it really is through you know it's just going to be through incremental change, just through you know, spreading, you know, wind and solar spreading and 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 kind of you know people developing a smart grid. Maybe you know, the, the revolution might be gradual and kind of boring, but I think there's a there's a there's a small possibility that it's going to be something really transformative, yeah. like like you know like like you know cheap you know cheap portable scalable nuclear fusion that you could even you know, they could. You know, that is self-contained enough. You could just kind of like ship these units to uh, to developing countries, and that could be that could be just like a global transformative kind of event. Do they have a launch date on that uh, on that uh, Starshot? Uh, I mean, it, right now it needs. I mean, it needs money for starters. Kickstarter <laughs> is there a Kickstarter or anything like that? Uh, there. That's a good question. I don't know. How, I don't know how exactly they're doing. They're better because that's forty-five years. So I mean, we're all fucking running out of time here. Like <laughs> yeah, seriously, yeah. we need this thing to go no, in the next five get, years. But you can get some good data on the way. It's not going to take that long to get good data. No, but you need the star to find out about other people. Right. Right. <laughs> so that's uh, forty-five years. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, the thing is, what, what you it would be great to do a Kickstarter. But what you really, you know, you could also do it if you could convince, you know, NASA and the European Space Agency to sign on, or honestly, if you could convince, uh, you know, Bill Gates and George Soros and three or four other people to sign on, you could just make it happen. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I, th- I think the, I mean, the, the time scale is roughly, it's probably the, the technology development part of it is probably about. A twenty-year project. Oh, wow. um, oh shit! Yeah, and so then, and then it takes forty years to get to Alpha Centauri, 
So I would and four uh, I would, years to get back the message. Yeah, so, so, so cut back on the red meat. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just counting on science to fucking bail me out here. Yeah, yeah. you know, maybe they'll be able to. Do- they might be able to download you into a cyborg or something. Then I'll be fun. happy with some like little nanobots that can go just clean me up once a year, once every five years. They just run through, clean everything up, take off the scale. I'll just be happy with a like a like a self-driving car, so I can do you know, very slow wheelies in the Walmart parking lot, <laughs> or not having to work. Right, if they could somehow. Yeah revolutionize us out of the workforce. So I think that art. would be like, you know, I'll take that over anything else so I could just do, you know, what, what I love all day. <laughs> bang, on my, bang on my drum. Yep. Right on, Corey. Well, thanks so much for okay. coming on, man. It's been a great chat. Oh, it's been oh, fascinating. Thanks for, yeah, thanks so much for your time. We're, we're going okay. gonna to send links to your, t- you're on Twitter all the time, right? We'll put your Twitter in there and uh, we'll send links to stuff that you do uh, on, in the oh, show yeah, notes. I, I, uh, I tweet like a maniac. Yeah. But I do- <laughs> But I, when I'm uh, anytime I'm avoiding any kind of other work, I'm on Twitter. So I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot. Nice, right on, buddy. Thanks so much. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you. Take care. Okay. Yep. Ciao. All right. Bye. When the mouse doesn't work, you have to hit the button. Okay. Click the button, and yeah. it'll pop up on the screen. Anyway, yeah. Big thanks to Corey for coming on the show. That was a fun one, eh? Yeah, that was good. A great sport. Oh, yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So what's what's powering uh what's propelling all those big UFOs out there, Darren? What's propelling them? Yeah. Your fucking imagination. Ah, <laughs> 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 yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah, I like when you can get a guy from that side of the fence that can come in here and uh shoot from the hip and speculate and kind of have fun and not be yeah, stuffy totally. at all. Yeah, you know it's what I mean? Great. Yeah. If everyone could just get along. So like knowledgeable that. too about all kinds of stuff, you know, like the the whole exoplanet thing. We've been wanting to do that for a long time. Actually, I meant to to say that to him. Like we we you know I've been talking about getting somebody on to talk about exoplanets for a while, and this was a great a great choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I've uh, been going through his a few of his colleagues, and maybe we'll try and sneak a few more in over the summer. I was I was trying to track down Pluto Killer today. Yeah. Oh, well, that's what I had that as a note to talk to him about Planet Nine. I mean, he's written articles oh, about that, right. and he's, you know, I wanted to ask him about well, the Pluto killer would be great to talk to about Planet Nine. Yeah. I've seen he's yeah. avidly tweeting right now about oh, trying really? to get that telescope to look for Planet Nine. Oh, wow. So uh, I meant to ask him as well about reconciling quantum mechanics and, and uh, relativity. Or like well, we kind of got into He kind of did a little bit, but. Yeah. It's, well, he's it's, the kind of guy we could keep in touch with and come have on, you know, once a year to just bring us up to date with the mainstream science. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He seems like someone you can trust. Yeah. Um, it was refreshing. It's funny that he agreed with me about astronomy and stuff like that being kind of free from that sphere of monetary. Yeah. Less dirtied up, less muddied up. Did you fix the mouse? Anyway, uh, yeah, big thanks to Corey. Check him out on Twitter. He's tweet pretty uh, tweets quite a bit, and uh, yeah, it was a fun one. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, check out grammarica.ca/support for all the different options there on how you can sign up for a monthly or send us one-time donation. Uh, I think we're gonna get some T-shirts going again here yeah, in the near yeah. future. Keep us ad free. Yeah, keep us ad free. Keep all us the, sponsor free. Keep all us- these links are in the show notes as well. Yeah, keep Graham doing the show notes. Um, Instagram. Instagram, Spamgram. 
the Grand America Show podcast on Instagram. That's right. All that shit. And uh, yeah, um, tell your friends about the show. Sign up for the newsletter. Signing other people up for the newsletter is a great way to tell your friends about the show. And they won't even know you sent them or who sent them. <laughs> it's just random. And they can unsubscribe if they want. It's not permanent. If we could figure out a way to make it permanent, we would, but we can't. So we won't. Anyway, guys, that about wraps it up. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
rambling grand with synchronicities all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. <laughs> <laughs>